Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. everybody, welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. As always, I am your host, Laura Nash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? I, I've, I've said something similar before, but I'm going to say it again. My, my podcast answer is, I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Always love this. My real truth answer is Ross from Friends. Hi. <laughs> I, I've been a little brooding this week. I've been, I have turned into a teenager researching this week. So my husband's felt it. I know he has. I've snapped a lot unnecessarily. So I've had multiple of my children walk in while I'm just sitting in a dark room listening to Nirvana. <laughs> so, I mean, and the true joke is my younger two are just like, they don't get it. They're just like, okay, great. Mom's in a mood. Leave her. But my oldest comes in and goes, Sure. Oh, what are we doing here? And I explained that I was researching Kurt Cobain and he gave me a hug and he went, Oh, mm hmm. So I'm like, I guess I've talked about it before. <laughs> the fact that he picked up on it. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned it before on the show. I don't know whether he's been secretly listening to the show, but if he is, <sighs> young man. We're on to ya. <laughs> I, I mean, he 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 commented once uh, that he was gonna listen to an episode, and I just went, "Oh, you don't have to do that." He's like, "I gotta support the cast," and I, I like that he's calling it a cast. Yeah, like we do. I know. Uh, and I was like, "Yeah, I don't know. I just don't. You shouldn't." And then he went to school. This was several months ago, and then he came home and just went. Your language. <laughs> I was like, here we go. I'm like, what are you listening to? And I think he went with like Tupac or Biggie or something. And I was like, oh, yeah, that checks. 
But still, the point is, young man, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Go to sleep. You're yeah. up too late, I'm assuming. I can't keep this Probably. bit going. Yeah. I'm hardly the I'm hardly the hammer I'm trying to pretend I am. Hardly. Oh gosh, what a day. We're starting this one a little late. Yeah. We're not normally starting this late at night, but I've had a, a long day and I can talk about it now because this will air this will air in August and yes. at that point it will finally have been announced. Hey, uh, the, the cartoon show that I'm uh, that I'm leading up, yes, called Chicago Party Ant, coming to Netflix, September seventeenth, I believe. Anyway, today was our final record for that, so I did that for most Ooh. of the day, and then I raced back home, jammed some. Mm. I had a very questionable dinner, if I'm going to be honest mm. with you. I was I was you know kind of noodling through some leftovers, which didn't include noodles, um, <laughs> and then just really housing popcorn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that that all feels right. It does. And now we're here, which I couldn't be happier about. But I got to be honest, I'm just on the Diet Cokes because I feel like if I if I dip a toe into an alcohol right mm-hmm. now, I will be asleep yeah. or or having a brownout. My friend Ashley, that's her term, which I love, which is not a blackout. You don't drink yourself till you pass out. It's just that things get a little hazy in your memory. <laughs> you know what I mean? I like I like that a lot. And uh, look. I'm going to say it. Same. Uh, wow. We are recording a little late. I have no yeah. problem with uh, booze a little late. But I was just uh, I was just not feeling it today. So when you were like, I'm going to grab some food and then I'll be ready. And I was just like, ah, that gives me time to go out and buy the largest drink that I could find. Oh, my gosh. It, do I need this much sugar? No. Do I want this much sugar? Also, no. Oh, oh. Do I want this much caffeine? Yes. So uh, I've bought the largest Slurpee that I can. I'm very excited about it. Uh, What I'm not excited about, there was a big sign, no lids. They had no lids, so it's unwieldy. So sometimes you pick it up from the top and you're like, it's okay. But when you pick it up, you know, lower, it gets a little... I don't know. The point is, by the end of this, dear listeners, if you hear me shout, it's because I've spilt so much Slurpee all over the place. Well, listen, I got to be honest with you. This morning I got up. Now, look, do I make coffee at home? Of course. Do I like a Starbucks iced drink? I do. Now, I know you're thinking something fancy. Nope, just a nice coffee. But I also uh, like the routine of it, too, to, like, get out of the, It helps me wake up sometimes on some mornings if sure. it's a nice day. Go get in the car. Go to the Starbucks drive through Get yourself a little smile. Bring it home, you know? Yeah. And I got myself a venti today because I knew it was going to be a long day. Uh, the venti is the real big one. The big okay. guy. Like, what you're, what you're drinking there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't even have a sip of it. Not a sip. And I sat it on my counter in my home. And I went to get some food, put it on a plate, went to pick up my coffee, and they hadn't snapped the lid on tight, and it was a rookie move on my part. But in my defense, I hadn't had my coffee. (laughs) Uh Long story short, I knocked it over almost the entire thing. I had two fingers of coffee left in the giant vat after the spill, which felt so unjust. That's uncalled for. You know what I mean? And I may not have said it out loud, but I would like to publicly apologize 
to Sharky because <laughs> when you started this, I was like, oh, it got knocked over. Come on, Sharky. And now I feel bad <laughs> because it had nothing to do with him. So I'm sorry, Sharks. I, uh, you know what? You Honestly, know? he earned that. He, uh, he had that coming. <laughs> he was a true crazy person during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and so he's, he's, he has gotten better now. Although the other day I was laying on the couch and out of nowhere, I was laying on my stomach, typing on my computer. People are going to tell me it's bad for my back. Whatever. I like it. Point being, he came over and just out of nowhere, I didn't even know he was there. He just bit my leg like hard. I have four holes in my leg. He bit me so hard. And then people say, oh, is he sick? Take him to the vet. He's been to the vet. He's fine. He's, he's got an attitude. <laughs> He's a broody teen. Has he also been listening to Nirvana in the dark? Oh my God. He's been probably listening to this podcast. (laughs) Well, young man. (laughs) Get to bed. Yeah. Get to bed. stop biting your mother. Please. Yeah. Oh, it's too much. It's too much. But see, he doesn't do it to Spencer. Mm. And that's why I'm like, this isn't a sickness. This isn't a, this is a like, this is a mother son thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, and I don't know what yet. But okay. my psychologist hat on is, is is on very early in this episode, and in this yeah. case, a kitty psychologist. <laughs> That's a show I'd like you to pitch. Well, I'm going to tell you a little something. Yeah. I have been referred to a couple of pet psychics in my time, I know, but I've considered it. What does it hurt? What does, what does it, it hurt? hurt? Is it, is it going to hurt me to pay an individual a certain sum of money to sit on the phone with me and then have them tap into the spirit of my cat <laughs> virtually or however it is they do it. Because they do it over the phone, eh? Oh. That's the most Canadian thing I've said on this show yet. It they is. They do it over the phone, eh? That was worse than MacArthur. So like Miss Cleo? It's like Miss Cleo, yeah. But and I'm like, do you need to see cats? a picture of, of the animal? Any animal. Uh, apparently not. Rob Benedict... I would say friend of the podcast. Ah, why not? From the show Supernatural, a uh, favorite of ours. Uh, he, yeah. I, I used to do a different podcast, and he came on as a guest, and he told a story about how he had a, issues with a, a cat of his, and that a friend ended up actually get doing a set. He was like, I'm not interested in the pet psychic, but the friend did it for him. Anyway, what I'm saying is is that maybe I need to know what, what's going on with Sharky, and, and truthfully, I, I don't know if there's any other way to find out. Sure. What's going on for him, like, you know, emotionally or mentally? Look, if, really? you, if you need, if they type up a report, they can send it to me and I'll, like, redact what you don't need to see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and at this rate, a lot of it's going to be, God, my aunt is the worst. <laughs> no. And that's, that's fine. We bonded, Sharky, and you know it. What? What I would like, though, is to get a file from you and then me have to read it. And it's like, okay, Sharky is feeling redacted uh, (laughs) regarding the situation with redacted. There's a lot that's been redacted in here. (laughs) Well, at least it says his name. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You never know. I'll I'll take out whatever uh, might hurt your feelings because I would step in front of a bus for you. And if that bus is hurt words, so be it. Nice. Just pour it in this cup. There's plenty of room. <laughs> Mix it around, and I'll, I'll I'll devour those words, so you don't have to. Oh, bless you. That's where I'm at. Bless you and your heart, your big damn heart. 
The other thing I want to address very quickly is if yeah. you're watching this rather than listening, you'll notice that my hair has gotten very short and very blonde. My yes. continuance into blonde, the blonde world is is continuing. Yeah, forgive me, people. I've, <laughs> I've had a day. But anyway, mm-hmm. I did look at myself in the mirror earlier and then go, Listen, first of all, I asked for it to be this length. Yes. I love this length. It's I am great. not criticizing. My dear friend did my hair, and I love it. But I did look in the mirror and go, is this Joseph Gordon-Levitt a la Third Rock from the Sun <laughs> length? Like, it feels very close, doesn't it? Again, I, I'm not saying that. I like, did I, not. I think I look great, but I was it's just like, do. who's other? I couldn't place it. I was like, whose hair do I know that was this exact length? And I think it was him. I I did not get any sort of Joseph Gordon-Levitt vibe. So not a vibe, not a so vibe, just the length. I He might have been a little longer. I'm not sure. He might have actually been a little bit longer, you're right. I think it looks great. I love it. I again, I it's not a criticism. It was just that I was trying to like I looked at myself and I was like, "Who is it that that this hair length reminds me of?" And that was yeah. the answer. I could think of worse answers. Oh, yeah. Oh, easily. Easily. Remember 10 Things I Hate About You? It's one of my favorite movies of all time, and I watch it every year. All Me the too. Time. Yeah. Me too. You know what I? my only criticism of that movie is? Oh, no. Here we go. Kate? I think they either needed to put more of the Shakespeare talk in or take what they had out. Okay. you know how there would be, like, the odd line... That was in like iambic pentameter and stuff. And it yeah. was like, either do it more, like, okay, we'll go with you. Sure. Do it more, or just don't. Cause I felt like they kind of dipped a toe. They didn't fully, it felt yeah. like they were like not really committing to it. Well, and I love that movie. The but that's girl my only, that's my that only. was obsessed with Shakespeare. Yes. That was a bit much. On the nose. I didn't care for nose. it. I didn't care for that part. Everything else, my God. What a what a gem. Heath Ledger. Good lord. I love Joey Donner because what an ass. <laughs> like I I love him so much. We quote the movie all the time. Yeah. All the time. Like I made a comment to my husband at one point and was like, you know what? Lauren and I, we need to do some sort of like true crime and cocktails event to be able to make us go give us a good excuse to go to like Europe. And my husband's response was like, oh, so you can be just whelmed. And I was like, oh, yes, of course. Because in the movie, the girl, two of the girls are talking and one says, you can be overwhelmed and you can be underwhelmed. But can you just be whelmed? And one of them says, I think you can in Europe. And the fact that it sticks with him and we quote it a lot. And I live for that movie. I would like like there's things that are like oof, I don't know flashing a teacher yeah I don't know that all of it would hold up to be honest if they were making no. it now oh yeah. no yeah no but what I like about the teacher that they chose in that he played Charlie Dietz on Empty Nest thank you very much and he essentially was basically a manch uh, he was a man. She was also very uh, Dan Fielding a la Night Court. Not in my heart, 
but in my brain, like I connected, I was like, they have a same because they were both very flirty. And that's only on my mind because earlier I was like, I've got a little extra time. I'm going to fold some laundry, but I can't just fold, sit there and fold it. I got to have, I got to have music playing. I got to have a video on. I got to have something because my brain needs to be entertained at all times. Uh, so I was like, you know what? I'm only season four. I need to keep going. So I went into another episode of Night Court. And in that, Dan was beyond flirt level. Like he was so creepy. It wasn't right. But at the same time, I was like, oh, he's the Dan I know and love. And that was my moment. And I'm sorry that Blanche is coming out so early. But that was my moment where I was like, you know what? He was a large part of my sexual awakening. Okay, you know what? Forgive yeah. me, but I think it has to be said. Holy shit. <laughs> wow. Okay. I didn't say that he captained the ship, but he was definitely a crewman. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, was he the skipper? Um, yeah, he could have been. Could have been. Wowzer. Yeah. Oh, so you just height, made that connection. charm. Yeah. Like, as soon as he comes on screen, I'm just like, okay. Like, I'm swooning. And he'll say something that it's like, oh, that would never make TV now. They would never oh, yeah, say yeah. something. Well, yeah. maybe on HBO. But, like, they'd never say something like that on, like, network cable. And yet there's something I was like, ah, oh, he's kind of gross, but, like, he's our gross. You know? Like, I don't know what that... <laughs> I don't know what any of that means. The point I is... I somehow do know what that means. Yeah. And I, I don't know that I could define it either, but I know what you mean. He had a really lovely scene with Roz where he was getting really emotional and she was just being really supportive and it was beautiful. And it was like, come on, just how am I not through this full series? How have I not just been devouring it? I just haven't had the time. But the point is season four. I'll get there. I'll get there. Wow. There are nine seasons, so I have, I have a ways to go. But I only started this journey a few months ago. I don't know. I barely, I I barely uh, have time to watch it, but I'm going to try and make an attempt to watch it more often because it, it's bringing a lot back. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, oh, I love that revelation. Yeah. I love that revelation. And really, I think, any excuse that I can mention, John Larroquette. Dear God, please. My sexual awakening, I only remember two moments, and they're very boring. What does that say about me? But it was Jeff the Mannequin of on today's special. Yes. <laughs> Which, for the Americans listening who will not know what I'm talking about, there was yeah. a children's show in Canada called Today's Special. Yeah. And one of the characters was a mannequin. And he would come to life at night when the store closed. But if he got his hat knocked off, he would turn into a mannequin. And then they'd have to put his hat back on him and say, Hocus Pocus Alamogocus. And then he would come back to life as a person. And he was played by an actor named Jeff Eslop, who was also a uh, you know musical theater performer, dancer. So he was a mover. You know what I mean? There's a lot yeah. of dance movement, whatever. And I do remember being a, a young child. And I remember feeling something. I didn't know what it was, but I remember feeling like I just felt something. Like, I think I just felt warm. <laughs> it turns out it was the hots. 
I guess that term exists for a reason. <laughs> yeah. What I love uh, was just how much uh, you remember from the show. Oh. I love how ridiculous it may seem to, you know, non-Canadians who never watched it. Or Canadians who never watched it, I guess. But I just, I feel, does it have something to do with your love of whimsy? I do think that. I do think that. Because you like whimsy um, and you like magic. And he was magical. I love magic. I, I do. Yeah, you're right. I think that the whimsy was a big part of it for sure. That it was like this was a person who was, yeah, a magical, whimsical person. You're right. I think that that I think that speaks to it at its truest core because I was such a young child at that point that that was what I was that was what responded to me and then the next moment I remember feeling something like that was was when Jack Travins (sighs) helped the wildcat out of that bus and that's and then he didn't leave her on the subway. He didn't leave her. And then that speaks to when when somehow, somehow, somehow after the whimsy, I broke. Something in me broke. And then it became being attracted to like, oh, he just didn't abandon her. He just didn't leave her. So, you know, we're doing the work. We're doing the work. <laughs> again, I could not be more thrilled that organically... Speed has once again entered our podcast. I know. As soon as I said it, I was like, damn it. We're, we can't bring up speed again. This is just they becoming. Know. They should. They know we love it. If they we do. if we mention it enough, maybe. And I, I can't even really say these words because I can't put it out in the universe. Because what if it happens? I won't. I'll die. What if someone. What if somehow Keanu finds out about our love of it and responds in some way? I oh my throat is dry. <laughs> Just I can't I can't even handle the idea of a message from him from just like like a publicist or something that's like oh he ha- he thinks this is great or whatever like just a it, it's not actually him reading it like I couldn't handle it. He's too nice. He'd probably read it. No, I can't. <laughs> yeah. It's no, it's overwhelming it's, to think it would about. Be a, a disaster. It, it would, would be. be a disaster. It would yeah. be. Oh my. Yeah, but very quickly also I just realized this is a fun tidbit for other people. So the other thing that should be noted about today's special is that the female lead opposite Jeff, the character name was Jody. Oh. And I cannot remember the name of the actress who played her, but I I do apologize for that. Uh but then there was two puppets. There was Sam Crenshaw who was the male uh security guard. Yes. And then there was a little mouse named Muffy. And Muffy was just the puppet mouse that lived in the store. And I loved this show so much. And I'm just putting this together now. So if anyone's a fan of Superstore, I'm about to make your dreams come true. Because people ask me all the time. I did name our grandmother's birds. She had two birds. And I named them Jody and Muffy. And so to those people who've always been like, well, do you have birds? Do you like birds? Like, I love all animals is what I always say, which is the truth. And I'm realizing now, I really was very, very invested in those birds. <laughs> of course. So, there you go. I also don't know if I'm saying this right, but uh, Noreen Virgin. Of course. Was yes. uh, was Jody, And another g- fabulous performer. It was a great show. It's a good show for kids. <laughs> That's what your son should be doing with his time. Get off! 
Don't listen to this show. Go watch the Today Special. I'm kidding. He's he's too old for it now. Though. Yeah, he would be like, I'm sorry. The security guard's a puppet. Yeah, yeah. He. I don't actually don't know if that would be his biggest problem. <laughs> See, my love of the movie Mannequin. <laughs> I am just immediately on board yep. for any yep. sort of situation where a mannequin comes to life. This makes sense to me. I watched that movie way too young, and looking back, I go, oh, shit, I should not have seen those things. Because there's a couple parts that are like, oof, that's not for kids. But I just it, it turns out if there's a genre of mannequins that come to life, I'm into it. Wow. It's, well, there was, I think there was a Christmas movie. There was a Hallmark Christmas movie. There's got to be. Wasn't there one where like a nutcracker came to life or something? Oh, yes. It was played by Barry. He was played by Barry Watson. I believe it was a very nutty Christmas starring Melissa John Hart. (laughs) Why would I have even continued talking? Of course she would have known which one it was. Good Lord. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Wow. But when you started, I was like, I don't think there is there. Oh, as soon as you said (laughs) nutcracker, I was like, oh, yeah, that was Barry Watson. I love, again, the encyclopedia knowledge. Well, listen, we, we've got to get going on this, but I, I could talk. We should, I think, put on the list the next time we're together. I yeah. think we should view some old Today's special together. I think we've got to put that on the list. I would love to. I'm only concerned. Are you going to go, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> listen, like the seasons turn, turn, turn. We we all change. Sure. What? <laughs> even know what I'm saying anymore uh, but I feel like it'd be a nice little tip of the hat to my childhood I little, nothing you know. makes me happier than when we put something to binge on our list see you yeah. said watch a little I turn it into a full binge who's the one here with the problem possibly me because if you asked me Lauren are there any songs or things you could recite from today's special other than the theme song, because that's easy. The answer is yes. There was an episode where Jody had to get to like head office by nine, and the mm-hmm. song that they sang throughout was "Hurry, Jody, get there. You gotta be there before nine, 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 nine. You gotta be there before nine. So that's who's really sick is me. <laughs> and by sick, you mean charming as hell. But what's that's okay. Last thought because I know we have to get into this, but yeah, I do have a question, and I don't know if there's any kind of neuroscientist that listen to this show or anything, but or neurologist. But I today I did so. a test as okay. I was driving around. I would put on a song that I legitimately have not listened to in like over 20 years, and I still know the lyrics. And what is that? Because I cannot tell you where my hairbrush is or my car keys are, but I can retain. I haven't watched today's special legit since I was probably six or seven years old. And I remember that song. How does that work? I think those memories are stored in a different part of the brain. It's a specific type of memory. And I can't think of what it is. I'm going to make up a thing and say it's the nostalgic memories. (laughs) That stay with us. Thank you. Because they're things. uh, Oh, because they're things that you remember. That are take that you remember them that'll take you back to a specific time. Where oh. because it means that time meant something to you. Whereas the last time you brushed your hair didn't mean anything to you, so you don't remember where it was. But you remember how you felt 
when Jody had to get there before nine. Nine. <laughs> that was beautiful, and I think you're a neuroscientist. You will. I'll no take the knew. degree. Oh, dear listeners, today we're talking, of course, about Kurt Cobain. <laughs> this is, of course, the episode that Christy has wanted to cover from the beginning of this show, but has dreaded covering because she has a very deep emotional connection, I feel like, to Kurt Cobain and, yep. and him and Nirvana and the whole story. So we're just going to dive in. We're going to yeah. see what happens. Now, believe it or not, I actually have read some books about this myself throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not recently, uh, but I'm very excited. I'm very excited to get into it because uh, this is obviously one with a lot of intrigue. Yeah. So as a refresher and for our younger listeners who maybe are like, don't know a lot about who this is, we're going to tell you right now. In 1991, Seattle-based band Nirvana completely changed mainstream music with the release of their second album, Nevermind. The album not only put Seattle music on the map, but it also ushered in a new genre of music known as grunge. Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain and his wife Courtney Love were practically the king and queen of the new alternative subgenre. But their rock and roll fairy tale ended when Kurt was found dead in the couple's home at the age of 27. So what really happened to Kurt Cobain? Was it just a tragic case of a man who tried to drown out his inner demons? Or were Kurt's demons the people who he was closest to? And why did Kurt call his lawyer a week before his death to try and remove people from his will? I, uh, I'm going to apologize in advance because I don't know what's going to happen tonight, today, this morning, whenever anyone's listening. Sure. Um, I, I will mention quite often, I believe, throughout this, the emotions. Of course. (laughs) That come up in me. Um, it's just, there's a lot. So I apologize. I don't know where this is going to go. I don't know what's going to happen to me. But we are. We're here. Hurry, Christy, get there. We're good. We're good. Everything's fine. I, I love it so much. I, I, I really needed that. Yep. Okay. So I believe I mentioned uh, on the podcast before, whether it was on an actual episode or maybe it was a Patreon episode or something. But when I was about 14 or 15, I wrote an essay on Kurt Cobain. I hate that I don't have access to it because I wanted so badly to quote from it for this episode. Because for one thing, where was I getting my information from? (laughs) There were no books written about Kurt or Nirvana at the time, and I didn't have access to the internet. So did I just piece my entire essay together from magazine articles and liner notes? Probably. But I guarantee it was full of feelings. (laughs) Also, my not-so-humble brag... I don't remember much about that essay, but I vividly remember that everyone in class were given these huge pieces of paper that we were supposed to use in order to organize our essays. My paper had Kurt's name in the middle, and then branching out in different directions were, you know, different sections, like there was one about Nirvana, one about Courtney Love, his childhood, etc. And each section was highlighted in a different color, which made my OCD very happy. And at one point while we were working, my teacher at the time, Mr. Dalmeda, stopped the class, held up my paper to show everyone how organized my information was, and he told everyone how grouping the information into specific sections was such a great idea and would help me write a successful essay. That was probably my proudest moment from high school, (laughs) which may not seem like much, but to be acknowledged for something that I was proud of, was exhilarating. (laughs) And it's clearly 
something that has stuck with me to this day, as it's very similar as to how I organized my research for the show. Not so much big pieces of paper anymore, but I have a different document for each section that I piece together uh, for a more cohesive story. And of course, a rainbow of highlighters are always present in my work. So shout out to the amazing teachers out there. Your work is seen and appreciated. You don't get paid nearly enough. And shout out to Mr. Delmeda's family. I know he passed several years ago, but he was a lovely teacher and I was always very fond of him. And when I heard that he had passed, immediately uh, I thought back to that essay and that moment where he was like, look at her. She's smart. Be like her. He didn't say it like that, but it he said it like that. He meant it that he way. He did. Uh, so let's hope I've done well enough that he would hold up my notes for this episode to show off to the class. <laughs> the pressure that I have put on myself for this specific episode is so immense that I can almost taste it. It tastes like almonds. Uh, so let's just all <laughs> metaphorically hold hands <laughs> as we walk through this together. So, to start things off right, we have to talk about Donald and Wendy. Donald Leland Cobain and Wendy Elizabeth Freidenberg met in high school, where Wendy's nickname, for some reason, was Breeze. A few weeks after Wendy's graduation, Wendy became pregnant, so the couple drove to Idaho on July 31st, 1965, where they could marry without parental consent. At the time, Donald was 19 and Wendy was 17. And I know it's going to seem a little early, but my desperate need for accuracy is forcing me to do a frustratingly inaccurate side note. So everything that I can find about Donald and Wendy claims they married July 1965. And at the time of the wedding, Wendy was pregnant. But their baby, who, spoiler alert, is Kurt Cobain, wasn't born until 1967. And that math doesn't work out. Uh, I assume that they got married in 1966, or I guess there maybe could have been a miscarriage, but neither of those theories has ever been proven. So for the sake of my sanity and for the sake of my street cred, I want to make sure that my information was as accurate as possible. So when I say they were pregnant in 1965 and then had a baby 19 months later, I know that mathematically that doesn't line up. I don't have a good answer for you, dear listeners. I hate that this case tried to break me immediately. <laughs> so. I thought he had an older sister. Uh, she's younger. Well, so much for that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, tried. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like, wait, it just, nothing makes sense. I bet you it was a miscarriage. It could that's have what it been. Sounds like I to also me. feel yeah. like it was probably 1966. Like I just, but they're very adamant that it was 65. But they're not. You know what? Again, yeah. This, no, I this case and its ghosts are, are trying to do something to me that I don't appreciate. But mm-hmm. so Kurt Donald Cobain was born February 20th, 1967, at Grays Harbor Hospital in Aberdeen, Washington. Kurt was described as a happy and excitable child who exhibited sensitivity and care. Around the age of two, Kurt created an imaginary friend named Bada. Don and Wendy eventually grew quite concerned about Kurt's attachment to this friend, so when his uncle was sent to Vietnam, they lied to Kurt and said that Bada had also been drafted. 
which probably isn't the best way to have handled that situation, but parenting is hard. Uh, so I'm just going to give them a pass on that one. For the most part, Kurt had a relatively normal childhood, riding bikes around town, watching TV obsessively, and joining various sports, including Little League, wrestling, and even a very brief stint in football. He was always seen as a popular kid, as he was well-liked by his classmates. Kurt would later be joined by a sister, Kimberly, in April 1970, and for the most part, the family seemed happy. Kurt started to display hyperactivity, and at first his parents believed it was simply just an abundance of boyish energy. But when Kurt was in the second grade and his energy levels started to get out of control, his parents started to have concerns that it was a potential medical problem. So Kurt was taken to a pediatrician who removed red dye number two from his diet. But believe it or not, his energy remained as boundless as ever, which led his parents <laughs> to limiting Kurt's sugar intake... And when that didn't help, he was then prescribed Ritalin. Kurt never forgot how the drug made him feel uh, as a child, and the experience was something that helped him later bond with Courtney Love, who was also prescribed Ritalin as a child. Courtney said, quote, When you're a kid and you get this drug that makes you feel that feeling, where else are you going to turn when you're an adult? It should be noted, I'm in no way saying that anything negative about Ritalin or implying it causes any sort of negative effect negative effect later in life. I'm just saying Kurt didn't like his experience with it, and Kurt and Courtney bonded over their shared childhood experience. But we will get into much more on Courtney Love later on. So for the most part, the Cobain family seemed fairly happy, at least from the outside. In a 1992 interview, Kurt said, quote, I had a really good childhood, up until I was nine. A week after Kurt's 19th birthday, Wendy told Don that she wanted a divorce. Custody of the children was awarded to Wendy. The divorce was incredibly traumatic for Kurt, as he blamed himself for it. His grandmother, Iris, described the first year of the divorce as, quote, Kurt's year of purgatory. Kurt later described it as, quote, I remember feeling ashamed for some reason. I was ashamed of my parents. I couldn't face some of my friends at school anymore because I desperately wanted to have the classic, typical family, mother-father. I wanted that security, so I resented my parents for quite a while because of that. Around the age of 10, Kurt would be taken to the hospital with stomach issues. It was believed he was simply malnourished, but it's possible that it was the first symptom in the stomach disorder that would plague Kurt throughout the majority of his adulthood. But again, more on that later. Mm -hmm. Just before the divorce was finalized, Kurt requested to live with his father, Don. More than anything in the world, Kurt just wanted a positive attention from his father. This move meant he was the only child at the house, so he was guaranteed all of the attention. And not only was he getting attention, but he was also being spoiled with lavish gifts as Don felt immense guilt over the divorce. But then Don started to feel lonely and started a relationship with a woman named Jenny Westby. Jenny entered the relationship with two children, Mindy and James. So suddenly Kurt's world was completely different and he started to act out. Then Kurt's mom, Wendy started seeing a man whose name, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I don't give a shit, Frank Frannick, who was physically abusive to Wendy. One night, Frank broke Wendy's arm, and after she was released from the hospital, she refused to press charges and remained loyal to Frank. This just added more fuel to Kurt's fire, and the acting out started to increase. Kurt began bullying a boy at school, and he became defiant and withdrawn. 
He was taken to a therapist who decided that Kurt would benefit from a single-family environment. So on June 28, 1979, Wendy granted legal custody of Kurt to his father, Don. Earlier that same year in January, Jenny gave birth to Kurt's half-brother, Chad. Kurt became a latchkey kid coming and going as he pleased and spending more time with television than he did with any adult. He was a huge fan of Saturday Night Live. By the eighth grade, Kurt was starting to experiment with marijuana and LSD. His teenage rebellion led Don to finding new accommodations for Kurt, who was passed around to different friends and family members. At one point, Kurt lived with a friend, Jesse Reed, and his family, who were born-again Christians. While living with them, Kurt became a devout Christian and attended church regularly. He would later uh, renounce Christianity and write the song Lithium about his experience living with the Reed family. And now that I've headed us in a musical direction, we may as well get into Kurt as an artist. It has been said that Kurt's talents as an artist were evident from an early age. He would draw his favorite pop culture characters, such as Creature from the Black Lagoon and Donald Duck. His drawing skills were described as exemplary. His family believed so much in his talents that his grandmother Iris had encouraged Kurt to pursue a career in the arts. But drawing seemed to be just a hobby for Kurt. By his second Christmas, Kurt had started to show an interest in music, which is no surprise, as music seemed to run in his family. Wendy's older brother Chuck was in a band called the Beachcombers, not to be confused with the Canadian classic TV show, which brings us to a Canadian television side note. Heyo! Beachcombers was a 30-minute show that ran from 1972 to 1990, making it one of the longest-running dramatic series in Canadian television. The show remained the longest-running series until it was surpassed by Degrassi in 2012. And because I know all of you are curious, I'm going to toss in an international television side note. Some other long, longest-running TV shows include, and I'm going to try and make this list faster, so I'm just going to say the show, followed by the number of years that it aired, Doctor Who, 42. Hmm, I like that. Uh, Saturday Night Live, 46. Fuck, couldn't they have been 45? That would have been so fun. Emmerdale, 49. Sesame Street, 52. Coronation Street, 61. Tonight Show, 67. And Guiding Light, 72. Of that specific list, Guiding Light is the only show that is no longer in production. So Kurt's uncle was in a band, and his Aunt Mary, who was Wendy's younger sister, played guitar. There was also a great uncle named Delbert, who was an Irish tenor and appeared in the 1930 movie The King of Jazz. Kurt was naturally musically inclined. According to Kurt's Aunt Mary, he began singing at the age of two, and by four he was playing the piano. Despite not taking any formal piano lessons, Kurt's sister Kim said, quote, he could sit down and just play something he'd heard on the radio. His parents bought him a Mickey Mouse drum set when he was quite young, which is adorable, uh, to encourage his love of music. Kurt began music classes in the fifth grade, and by the seventh grade, he was playing drums with the school band. On October 26, 1979, Kurt was featured in the school newspaper where he said his favorite song was Don't Bring Me Down by ELO, and his favorite rock group was Meatloaf. <laughs> I don't think of Meatloaf as a rock group, but I, I get where he's going with that. For his 14th birthday, Kurt's uncle Chuck gave Kurt the option between a bicycle or an electric guitar. Kurt, 
thankfully for all future Nirvana fans, chose the guitar. It was a cheap secondhand Japanese model, which often broke, but Kurt loved it more than anything and was soon learning to play songs by Led Zeppelin, Queen, and The Cars, before work, starting to work on songs of his own. Kurt played left-handed, despite the fact that he had been forced to write with his right hand. Which is interesting, but we're moving on. One of Chuck's bandmates was a man was a man named Warren Mason, who was known to be the hottest guitar player on the harbor. <laughs> I had to. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yep. Kurt started taking lessons with Warren, who said that Kurt was a serious student who spent hours trying to apply himself. When asked, when Warren asked Kurt what his goal song was that he'd like to learn, Kurt said, "Stairway to Heaven." The lessons ended when Kurt's family complained that all he ever did was play guitar and that his grades had plummeted. During Kurt's sophomore year, he, he transferred to Weatherwax High School in Aberdeen, where he met Roger Buzz Osborne, the singer and guitarist for the Melvins. The pair became good friends, and Buzz introduced Kurt to punk rock and hardcore music. Kurt found an escape in the Pacific Northwest punk scene. Another friend that Kurt met in high school, who also took lessons from Warren Mason about four or five years after Kurt did, was Krist Novoselic. Krist uh, would later say that him and Kurt were drawn to each other because they were both weirdos, <laughs> which I like and kind of made me think of us. Yeah. While going to Weatherwax High, Kurt lived with his mother, Wendy. And when Kurt realized he didn't have enough credits to graduate, he dropped out just two weeks before graduation. Wendy gave him an ultimatum that he needed to get a job or leave. A week later, he returned home to find all of his stuff packed in boxes. This led to Kurt moving around and living with various friends while also going through periods of being without housing. He also mm. lived in a car for quite a long time. Oh, wow. Kurt's claim, uh, Kurt claims that he lived briefly under a bridge over the Wishkaw River, an experience that inspired the song Something in the Way. However, Christ would later say that Kurt had been exaggerating. Shortly after dropping out of high school, Kurt formed the band Fecal Matter in 1985. Oh. It initially featured Kurt singing and playing guitar with Dale Crover from the Melvins playing bass and Greg Hokanson playing drums. They played some original songs as well as covers by the Ramones, Jimi Hendrix, and Led Zeppelin. Fecal Matter disbanded in 1986. I want to oh, say shame. I want to say that's the last time I'm going to say those words, but I know I say it at least once more. Uh, and I can't, I can't tell you what I'm going to say in future episodes. Uh, in 1986, Kurt was working at a Polynesian resort on the Pacific coast at Ocean Shores, Washington. He would often travel to Olympia to go to rock concerts. And during one of those trips, he met Tracy Miranda. Shortly after, Kurt left his job at the resort to move to Olympia with Tracy However, after moving, Kurt didn't bother to get another job. Instead, he spent his time sleeping all day, watching TV, and concentrating on art projects. Tracy had to lurk, work long hours in order to support them both. Kurt then tries to convince Chris to start a band. He lends him the demo for Fecal Matter. After months of asking, Chris finally agrees. So in 1987, Kurt, Chris, and Aaron Burkhardt Burk formed the band Nirvana. Crazy name, side note. 
Prior to choosing the name Nirvana, the band previously played shows under Skid Row, Ted Ed Fred, Bliss, and Pen Cap Chew. And yes, for the audiophiles listening, you're right, there was a band named Skid Row. They were based in New Jersey and had been af- have been active since 1986, although their debut album wouldn't come out until early 1989, so at the time, Kurt and his bandmates probably wouldn't have heard of them. Because again, life before the internet, it was just yeah. like the Dark Ages. But the first few years for Nirvana were disappointing as they failed to draw the substantial crowds that they had hoped for. They did start to build an audience thanks to Sonic Youth, who brought them along on a tour. Uh, during this time, there was a rotating list of drummers, which ev- uh, eventually settled on Chad Channing. The group recorded their first single, Love Buzz, which was released through Sub Pop Records. Sub Pop Side Note Sub Pop Records is an independent label that was founded in 1986. The first two releases on the label were Green River and Soundgarden, which, good lord, uh, they, they hit the mother load, is my point. Yeah. The label achieved fame early on for signing Mud Honey and Nirvana and were considered to be central players in the grunge movement. Other well-known acts on their roster include The Shins, Sleater Kinney, The Postal Service, and Flight of the Concords. Sub Pop had a singles club where people paid $35 a year for a subscription that would get them one new single every month. Love Buzz was so popular in the club that Nirvana was given the chance to record a full album, so Sub Pop paid $600 to produce Nirvana's first album, Bleach, which was released in June 1989. Tracy Miranda not only inspired songs that would appear on Bleach, such as About a Girl, uh, she's also credited as having taken the cover photo for the album. Kurt soon became unhappy with Chad's drumming style and ended up making what I'm going to boldly call the best move in Nirvana history. Uh, yeah. Chad Channing was replaced by 21-year-old Dave Grohl, and I don't know why I said it in that tone. But this was the moment in my research when I realized that I have a very, very deep-rooted love of Dave Grohl that I don't think I've ever truly acknowledged before. Wow! Yeah, so for the sake of honesty, and to continue living my truth, Dave Grohl, if you're listening, how you doing? (laughs) (laughs) And to my husband, if you're listening, you're still my favorite. (laughs) In the same week that Kurt fired Chad, he also broke up with Tracy. Not only had he cheated on her while on tour, which is gross, Kurt, He'd also fallen in love with someone else. And to be clear, the woman he fell in love with was different than the woman that he had cheated with. And to that, I just want to say, Tracy Miranda deserved better. As a teenager, I would have said, oh my God, Tracy is so lucky. But as an adult, I can honestly say, Kurt was the lucky one. And that, dear listeners, is what we like to call growth. (laughs) (laughs) It really is good for yeah. you. I've I've come a long way. I I went through some things while writing this. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, Dave, girl. The woman that Kurt had become infatuated with was Toby Vale, a drummer, guitarist, and singer, and a founding member of the band Bikini Kill, 
When Kurt and Toby first met, he was so overwhelmed that he threw up. This moment would later inspire the lyric, Love you so much it makes me sick, in the song Aneurysm. Kurt and Toby collaborated on a project called Bathtub is Real, in which they both sang and played guitar and drums. Toby would later say, quote, he would play songs he was writing, I would play the songs I was writing, and we'd record them on my dad's four track. Sometimes I'd sing the songs he was writing and play drums on them. He was really into the fact that I was creative and into music. And I truly believe that's why uh, Tracy didn't stand a chance to ever be there. He, he needed someone who's creative musically and well again you deserve better tracy justice for tracy yeah justice for tracy so kurt and toby would date for about six months at one point a friend and bandmate of toby's named kathleen hannah who also dated dave grohl the lucky girl spray painted kurt smells like teen spirit on the wall of kurt's apartment kathleen was referring to the deodorant that toby wore but kurt is a dude and didn't realize that it was a deodorant brand. He interpreted the phrase as like a revolutionary slogan and it inspired the Nirvana song Smells Like Teen Spirit. So Dave joins the band and things click immediately. So much so that just 20 days after auditioning, Dave played his first Nirvana show. And thanks to a recommendation from Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, Nirvana was signed to the Geffen Records subsidiary DGC Records in 1990, and in 1991 they released their major label debut, Nevermind, which, fun fact, was originally going to be called Sheep. Huh. I, I think they made the right choice. Uh, the first single off the album was Smells Like Teen Spirit, which thrust Nirvana into the mainstream and popularized the alternative rock subgenre, grunge. Many of the lyrics from the album were inspired by Kurt and Toby's relationship. Nevermind has since sold more than 30 million copies and became certified diamond in both the United States and Canada, five times platinum in Australia, and six times platinum in the UK. Impressive as hell, side note! Nevermind has spent 520 weeks on the Billboard 200 chart meaning that throughout the 30 years since, it re- since its release, the album has been on the Billboard chart for 10 years. Nevermind was the seventh album in history to spend at least 520 weeks on the Billboard 200. The other albums are, and let's act like we're surprised, but we're not, Journey's Greatest Hits. Of course. Metallica's self-titled. Yes. Guns N' Roses' Greatest Hits. Makes sense. Eminem's Curtain Call. Big album. Bob Marley and the Wailers' Legend. Yes. And Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon, which has been on the Billboard 200 for 958 weeks. Wow! Yeah. In March 2021, Eminem's Curtain Call hit 520 weeks one month before Nevermind which was also recently named one of the most streamed albums ever on Spotify with 122 million streams worldwide. Album artwork side note. The cover of Nevermind featured a picture of a naked baby underwater with money on a fish hook floating in front of him. That baby was four-month-old Spencer Eldon, uh, who is now 30 years old and has the word Nevermind tattooed across his chest. 
The photographer shot 18 frames and Spencer's parents were paid $200. Spencer has since tried to capitalize on this fame uh, by recreating the photo, but with clothes on, uh, in 2008 and then again in 2016. Although, I'm sorry, dude. I just don't think anyone cares. (laughs) So there it is. Uh, Nirvana's success helped pave the way for other Seattle bands such as Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, and Pearl Jam. Because of this, alternative rock became one of the most dominant genres on radio and music television in the United States during the first half of the 90s. Nirvana was considered to be the flagship band of Generation X, and Kurt Cobain was reluctantly anointed by the media as the Generation spokesperson. It's been said that if there was a John Lennon figure for Generation X, it would be Kurt. And as a huge Beatles fan, Kurt probably would have liked that, although he wouldn't have liked the attention that such a claim uh, would have come with. That didn't make sense, but we all get what I was saying. Yeah, The band struggled to cope with their sudden success. It has been said that Dave Grohl suffered from panic attacks. Get the blankets? <laughs> And that Kurt was overwhelmed and anxious. Kurt was also battling chronic, excruciating stomach pains. Doctors were unable to diagnose the problem for years. And although in January 1994, Kurt would claim to a reporter the problem was long gone. In reality, it seemed like he had found something to help with the pain and that something was heroin. It is said that while Kurt started doing heroin in November 1990, by the summer of 93, Kurt was using almost daily, but we will get into the drug use in a moment. Of course. As Kurt struggled to adjust to uh, the newfound fame, he began to harbor resentment against people who claimed to be fans of the band, yet refused to acknowledge the band's social and political views. Kurt was a vocal opponent on sexism, racism, and homophobia. Nirvana played a gay rights benefit in Oregon in 1992. The show was in opposition to Ballot Measure 9, which, if passed, would have directed schools to teach that homosexuality was, quote, abnormal, wrong, unnatural, and perverse. Thankfully, the ballot was defeated. But in a terrifying side note, while it was defeated, there was only a 200,000 vote difference? Over 800,000 people voted against the measure, but over 600,000 people voted for it. Jesus. I understand that this was 1992, but good Lord. Kurt was also a vocal supporter of the pro-choice movement and ended up receiving death threats from anti-abortion activists when he participated in the Rock for Choice campaign. I will never understand someone being so angry that they tell someone else, they deserve to die based slowly, solely on their beliefs. Never. And if you're at a point in your life where you think that someone should die because they don't share your beliefs, it's time to look inward. Yes, absolutely. Well, while we're talking about causes that Kurt Cobain supported, that brings me to my very first true crime side note. What? Mia Zapata. The lead singer for the Seattle punk band The Gits was murdered July 7th, 1993, while on her way home. She was just 27 years old. Uh, Mia was beaten, 
sexually assaulted, and strangled. Since she had no ID on her, she couldn't immediately be identified. However, the medical examiner happened to be a fan of the Gitz, so she could she was the one who identified the body. Police didn't seem to make much headway with the case, so a concert was planned by the Seattle music community and had acts such as Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. The event raised $70,000, which allowed them to hire a private investigator for three years. Unfortunately, the PI wasn't able to get any breaks in the case at the time, but a DNA profile was extracted from saliva found on Mia's body and kept in a cold storage until the technology was developed for a full extraction. The DNA was tested in 2001, but there were no matches. However, in 2002, a Florida fisherman was arrested for burglary and domestic abuse, so his DNA was entered into CODIS, and in 2003, that disgusting piece of shit was found to be a match, was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 36 years in prison. And in order to end this side note on a less heavy vibe, I give you a lighter side note. (laughs) One of the many tributes to Mia is the 1994 album Viva Zapata by the band Seven Year Bitch, which features the song The Scratch, which I feel safe in saying is a song that Lauren and I have both been pretty obsessed with over the years. I just pointed my Sharpie at you and went, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because we, we... We sang it briefly somewhere. Don't remember. Yeah. Uh, there's also a, a, a picture of uh, Mia on the cover of the album. There you go. Which I didn't know about Mia. No. Somehow. And as soon as I saw her photo, I was like, oh my God, she's the girl on the cover of that album. Oh, that's so I've funny. Yeah, I didn't, that album I didn't so know that either. Wow. Yeah. So we've gotten to the part in the story that, Im- that involves uh, Kurt's infamous other half so january 12 1990 in a nightclub in portland kurt met courtney michelle harrison better known as courtney love the lead singer of the band hole the couple would meet again in may 1991 backstage at a show where kurt was drinking cough syrup and courtney opened her purse to show off her own bottle of cough syrup courtney gave kurt her number and he called her later that night at 3 a.m Kurt and Courtney continued having late-night phone calls, despite the fact that at the time, Courtney was dating Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins fame, and Kurt was dating an indie folk singer named Mary Lou Lord. During a radio interview, Courtney was asked about Kurt's girlfriend Mary Lou, and Courtney screamed that she was Kurt's girlfriend. Courtney then called Kurt livid, demanding to know about Mary Lou. Soon after, Nirvana made a TV appearance where Kurt said that Courtney Love of the pop group Hole was, quote, the best fuck in the world. What? And that's how Mary Lou learned that things were over with Kurt. Oh, Kurt. (laughs) Which is a really shitty way to break up with someone, especially so publicly. So for another time in this episode, I'm going to say gross, Kurt. Justice for Mary Lou. Yeah. Oh, there's... Yeah. We're, we're going to need more blankets. <laughs> so after Kurt's death, Courtney would claim that Mary Lou was just someone trying to use Kurt to make something of herself and that no relationship between them actually ever happened. 
Courtney even went so far as to claim in an interview with Rolling Stone that Mary Lou was just some groupie who went down on Kurt once in the back of a van. So, gross, Courtney. (laughs) Uh, But numerous people who were friends with Kurt at the time say that he was genuinely in love with Mary Lou and that he was planning to move to Boston to be with her. But Courtney seems to have any issue with any woman ever having a piece of the man that she was claimed was hers and hers alone. Because, of course, she wants to be the only woman that he ever loved. And spoiler alert, bitch, you weren't. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow, she's she's getting spicy. She's getting spicy. I thought the only spice in this was going to be about Dave Grohl, but I I was, no, I didn't think it was going to get angry spice. I guess that's what Spice Girl I am. (laughs) Angry Spice. Yeah, that feels right. Although I think that's Mel B, isn't it? Ah, so Kurt and Courtney were dubbed the perfect rock and roll couple, but I saw them as more mutually destructive than perfect together. Uh, But I mean, what do I know? By the end of November 1991, Courtney was so infatuated with Kurt that after not seeing him for two weeks, she canceled a show with her band Hole to fly to Amsterdam to be with Kurt. And on February 24th, 1992, Kurt and Courtney were married at sunset on Waikiki Beach. Courtney wore a vintage white dress that once belo- that was once worn by Francis Farmer, and Kurt wore blue plaid pajamas. Only eight people witnessed the ceremony, including rock and roll heartthrob Dave Grohl. <laughs> <laughs> but the third member of Nirvana was not present, despite the fact that he was also in Hawaii at the time. Apparently, Kurt banned Chris's girlfriend Shelly from attending the wedding, as Shelly had been talking a lot of shit about Courtney. So since Shelly wasn't invited, neither was Chris. Chris said he flew home the next day, assuming that Nirvana had broken up, and while uh, it was four months before the band would perform together again, they definitely did not break up in that moment. A month later, in July, Lithium was released as the third single from Nevermind. The single had a sonogram photo on the sleeve belonging to Kurt and Courtney's soon-to-be-born daughter. But before we get into the family dramas, let's finish off the musical portion of my notes, because if nothing else... She's thorough. Of course. I'm also realizing I'm really treating this more as that essay that I'm like, see, Mr. Delmeda, I can make it better. I I have research now. Stop it. Stop it. I've become 14 again. I don't know how to handle this. So months after Nevermind was released, Nirvana's first label, Sub Pop, decided they were going to release a compilation of unreleased Nirvana songs on an album aptly titled cash cow oh boy but geffen records made a deal with sub pop so that kurt could do his own compilation and in december 1992 the band released incesticide the album which was originally going to be called throwaways included b-sides demos cover versions and the non-album single from 1990 sliver and because it was early nirvana stuff the album features four different drummers Assuming that we don't include the compilation in the count, Nirvana's third album, In Utero, was released in September 1993, where it entered charts at number one. The first single released from the album was Heart Shaped Box, 
a song inspired by a gift that Courtney gave Kurt in late 1990. Other singles from In Utero include All Apologies and Penny Royalty. But back to the family drama, because I know that's what we like. So, August 18th, 1992, at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, Francis Bean Copain... Fuck that. Jesus. Ah! She deserved better than... I mean, God, talk about the blankets. I'm gonna... Okay. Francis Bean Cobain was born. She was named after Francis McKee of the Scottish indie pop duo The Vaselines and the nickname Bean that Kurt and Courtney used throughout the pregnancy. It's been said that when Kurt saw the ultrasound, he said, quote, look at that little Bean. And the name stuck, which I really respond to. And we're going to find out if my young man listens to this because he'll be horrified by what I'm going to say. Uh, when I was pregnant with my oldest, there were early on, I thought there was a problem. So I went to the doctor. I was at, ended up at a hospital to do an ultrasound to make sure things were fine. Everything was fine. I was a first timer. I panicked at nothing, uh, it turns out. And I saw the ultrasound that was the tiniest little thing in the world. And I just said, look at that little bubble. And so throughout the whole pregnancy, he was referred to as Bubble. So I don't call him that anymore. His loss. My, His well, loss. Right? Yep. So to that I say, Bubble, stop listening. Go to bed, Bubble. No. <laughs> oh, God. Is it time to bring it back? It might be time to bring it back. Well. I'm also realizing this is the kind of shit that makes me go like, oh, God, yeah, Kurt and I would have been great together. <laughs> no, we wouldn't. <laughs> have he was a deeply disturbed person yeah this he would have destroyed me is what would have happened so there was also a large age difference (laughs) (laughs) just 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 a scotch scotch the point is what was i just again this week i have been a teenager and it's really hard to get your brain out of it. So I get it. Heaven help us all. Uh, and while the Cobains were celebrating the birth of their daughter, the world was being kind of shitty towards them about it. The Globe, which I once thought of as a fairly respectable newspaper, published an article with the headline, Rockstar's Baby is Born a Junkie. And the worst part is they published the article with a picture of a deformed fetus implying that it was Francis Bean. It was not. This is awful at best. (laughs) That is awful. Now, there was controversy at the time, of course, that Courtney was um, using heroin during her pregnancy. Correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, we are are going to get into that. Yeah, so that was, I believe, what it was referring to, but I also agree with you that that is true trash. True, true trash. Um, Publishing. I like true trash. True trash. I like it. True trash and trash tales. Okay, good night. Um, <laughs> uh, now, okay, uh-huh. well, listen, we've got so much more to get to, but we got to take a very quick break. But before we get to that break, yeah. much to, like I've said to you, I can remember songs that I haven't heard in 20 years. I offer mm-hmm. you this. Oh. Teen spirit, just for teens by Menon. That was the jingle for teen spirit deodorant. We'll be right back. <laughs> What 
What's up, everybody? This is Lauren Ash, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. A couple of quick reminders. If you're looking for any of the visuals Christy mentions in this or any of our episodes of the podcast, make sure to follow us at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram. There she posts a case file with all the relevant visuals for each episode of the show. If that's not enough for you, you want a little bit more, go to our website, truecrimeandcocktails.com. There, Christy posts extensive virtual case files. This is literally everything she finds in her research. It's a treasure trove of deep dives, and it's all there for your enjoyment. Also on the website, you can find our full unedited Zoom episodes of the show if you'd like to watch rather than listen. And make sure to give us a follow on Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails, Twitter at Not Detectives, and the most important piece of information, if you like the show, please, wherever you listen to it, give us a nice rating. Go on to Apple, leave us a nice review. I know it sounds like a silly cliche, but the truth is it really goes a long way in this crazy podcast world, and your support means the world to us. But enough about all that. Get yourself another drink, sit back, and enjoy. Enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Uh, We left off with me prattling off a 1990s commercial jingle that still rattles around in my brain for some unknown reason. Uh, And we were, of course, talking about Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love's child, Frances Bean, and the way, of course, her birth was treated in the media. Not great. Not great. So that's where we left off. What else you got? Well, I'm going to say this quickly. Uh, During our break, I I took a pee break. And while I was on the can, let me tell you this. I had a thought. And I'm sure that, you know, scientists or any neurologist is going to be like screaming, what is wrong with this woman? But what if we remember the stuff from our youth, because when we're younger, you just, you absorb more things and they stick in there when you're, you know, the whole, like, you can't teach an old dog new tricks as we get older. Maybe we just don't retain it like we used to, but we still have all the original stuff that's in there. Like I could go into the poem I had to recite. I had to memorize and recite in the sixth grade about Sam McGee from Tennessee. Oh, that's right. Yes. So it's like, I could get into that. And I have, I don't think about it often, but it's still in there, which is. It's almost like when we're young, our brains don't know how to like differentiate between what is super important information and what isn't. So it just stores everything. That makes sense. And then when we're adults, our computer just wipes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like a self-cleaning oven. It just gets rid of what it knows it doesn't need. This all makes sense. There is a theory I read about once. Now we're really getting into it. Yeah. There was a theory I read about once that said that dreams is your brain doing a defrag. So you know how it used to be like in the 90s or early 2000s where you'd run a defrag on your computer and it would like slowly, you know, get rid of the, the junk you don't need? That that's what your brain is doing. And so it's taking stuff out of your subconscious that you no longer need. And you're seeing like snippets or parts of it. And that's why dreams are always like metaphors. Because you're seeing like weird parts of it as it's going. Like as it's being deleted. Which is so interesting, interesting to me. And that's why oftentimes you won't remember your dreams. This is a theory. I don't know if that's true or false. But oh uh, Well, when we start our dream analysis <laughs> podcast... <laughs> Something I'm also passionate about. 
I used to do them on set all the time for Mark McKinney. Mark McKinney would come in and bring me a dream all the time and be like, tell me about this. And I would break them down. And then he got passionate that I needed to, <laughs> I needed to do it as a show because I am very good at it. I'm very good at dream analysis. If I'm, I know the person, I haven't done it with strangers before, but I feel like if you know, if you know the person, then you can potentially have more of an insight into why they might be dreaming the things they're dreaming. But it is a passion. I think it's amazing. And if nothing else, I will happily be the Paul Schaefer to your letterman in that situation. Or I'll simply just be a guest whenever you I need just, various <laughs> guests that you know. I just had a vision of you with mm-hmm. so many piano keyboards around you, dressed like Paul Schaefer, and then just like like mashing the keyboards. <laughs> yeah, accurate. And then just accurate. chopsticks. <laughs> accurate because i can do that and i i can do joy to the world but only like the beginning part that like everybody can do you know what i think we should do i think you should save me a dream and i know that we've dabbled with it a little bit before but for a patreon bonus episode patreon.com slash your crime and cocktails sure like a give me a meaty one and we'll do it yeah well i have to now start i have to if i have a really good one i need to like make sure i write it down or I need to dust off my dream journal from like my teen years. I wrote at least a few of them down. And I need to have it ahead of time. Like I need time with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I know. I can't just spring it on you. <laughs> you can. You can. And I, that's often how I do it. But I'm saying if we're taking this super seriously. Right. You know. So what you're saying is when we're done, I need to put some keyboards in my cart (laughs) it's what we're saying she's doing dream analysis oh i (laughs) i can't wait that feels right and then i just need a triangle every once in a while just to be like ding (laughs) oh i can't wait this show writes itself yeah absolutely Ah, so it should be noted that Francis Bean was born perfectly healthy. Yes, absolutely. But just two days after Francis's birth, the Los Angeles County Department of Children's Services visited the hospital to investigate Kurt and Courtney's parenting abilities. And all of this happened because of a magazine article. Lynn Hirschberg spent hours interviewing Courtney, and after secretly talking with anonymous sources, Lynn published an article called Strange Love, which ran in the September 1992 issue of Vanity Fair. The article did not paint Courtney in a very good light. In fact, one part says that Courtney is, quote, a train wreck personality. She may be awful, but you can't take your eyes off her. The article also questioned whether Kurt and Courtney were the grunge uh, John and Yoko or the next Sid and Nancy. And it also spoke of their drug use. Mm. A close friend was quoted as saying, quote, It is appalling to think that she would be taking drugs when she knew she was pregnant. We're all worried about the baby. The article cited 20 different sources from the record industry that admitted that both Kurt and Courtney were heavily into heroin. Kurt did an interview with Rolling Stone in January 1992 that claimed he was not taking heroin. However, Courtney told Lynn that while in New York for Nirvana to appear on Saturday Night Live, they went on a binge. 
quote, we did a lot of drugs, we got pills, and then we went to, down to Alphabet City and copped some dope. Then we got high and went to SNL. After that, I did heroin for a couple of months. Keeping in mind that by January 1992, Courtney would have been pregnant with Francis Bean. Another unidentified associate claimed that, quote, Courtney was pregnant and she was shooting up. Kurt was throwing up on people in a cab. They were both out of it. The article also claimed that Kurt didn't do much more than drink until he met Courtney, which isn't true. He got into heroin on his own. It's just wild to me that the article tried so hard to blame Courtney for all of Kurt's downfalls. I tr truly believe that he was deeply troubled and his drug problems weren't caused by Courtney. She didn't make the problems any better, but she certainly didn't start them. And this is huge for me to say because years ago I would never have been even slightly positive about Courtney Love. So again, growth. Growth. We're Always also not growing. saying that, that, you know, listen, this is, don't take this as a sign of like, oh, us, us championing Courtney Love necessarily either, but. Oh, later I, I'm not positive about her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but I think the important thing very quickly, and we yes. did briefly touch on this in the break, is that it is interesting to me, and we would be remiss if we didn't address this. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, Ding. It is, it, yeah. thank you. <laughs> See? Yeah. You know what? Much like the judge's gavel, I'm going to get you a triangle. <laughs> you wait. It's going to show up one day and you're going to you're going to love it. I can't um, wait. No, but listen, and I know that I'm getting ahead of myself, but I just want to plant this now is yeah. that it is interesting to me that of course that Kurt has been painted as being this kind of almost like princely character, I think for a lot of us in our minds in that in that Courtney is evil, 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 evil. And listen, I'm not saying that there may not be tr true or false to that, but I do think it's important, like you're saying, when there are those moments where it's like, she may not have been, you know, we're not saying that she was an angel by any stretch. No. And this is me, you know, I have my own opinions about uh, about her for sure, but it is important to to note the, the times where she was being unfairly painted like yes. that because it does still tie back to deep misogyny that it was like at the end of the day, this narrative being painted was he didn't even drink until he met Courtney. Well, he didn't do this until he met Courtney. And it's like, but wait a minute, you've already outlined that we know that he started drugs prior to that. And also we've, you've already outlined also that some of his relationships, you know, you know and listen, he was a young guy. I get it. But cheating, breaking up with people by saying that he had had sex with Courtney Love on in, in an interview mm. like again you know what I'm saying like it's it's like she was also there, there's also parts of this that were not necessarily puppeteered by her in my opinion and I think oh. it's important to point those out because it's easy to say she did absolutely everything and he was a hundred percent squeaky clean and uh, come on he used to get high off of the bottom of shaving cream cans right so you know, and that's not a judgment. That's just no. Nope, that's stating just a, that it's a whole. It this wasn't is somebody, just her. right? This it, is somebody who was dealing with substance yeah. use issues before yes. her. It yeah. was okay. two people that had serious issues that got together and then just fed off each other, and it yeah. grew to something that neither of them could handle. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, you're right. I mean, everybody, you look back, and because he was so young, and because it was like. He was seen as this rock god. It's like, oh, well, 
wouldn't have happened if he never met her. And it's like, you don't know right. that. We and don't I, know. I know that I've, I've been screaming that since I was 14. But growth. <laughs> growth. She's, she's back to it. She's back to it. I love it. But Lynn uh, was awful to Kurt and Courtney. Uh, and there had been rumors that she'd even badmouthed the couple to other journalists. And some may say it was just an article. They could just ignore it because they know the truth. But people took Lynn's words as gospel, and that article had a lasting effect. Not only did it lead to child services investigating the Cobains as possibly unfit parents, but it also resulted in Frances being removed from her parents' custody. A judge said that Frances would need to have a new guardian in place, and it was suggested they choose a close family member. But at the time, Kurt and Courtney weren't overly close with either of their families. So in the end, they chose Courtney's half-sister, Jamie Manelli, they share a mother, to act as guardian. At the time, Jamie was going to college in Oregon and needed money. So Kurt and Courtney paid Jamie $5,000 to go to Los Angeles, and on August 24th, Jamie was given custody of six-day-old Francis. The Cobains would not would not have legal custody of their daughter until March 1993. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so the article caused legal problems for the Cobains, but to me, the most heartbreaking part is that when Frances was a teenager, she attended an acting camp in the Catskills. She was allegedly bullied by some of the other kids who called her a crack baby because of the article. And I just can't stand bullying. And I just want to scream, leave the kid alone because she has been through enough. Oh, yeah. And if I'm going to raise my voice, I may as well add in a bitchy side note. Ah, my biggest issue with this Vanity Fair article. At one point, Courtney is being interviewed at their apartment and Courtney shows off various things that are hung up. And one of those things is a to-do list that was written for Kurt by his ex-girlfriend, Tracy Miranda. Back when Tracy and Kurt were living together and she was the breadwinner, she would leave him little notes with various tasks for him to do, which was kind of the least he could do for living there for free. Sure. Years later, Courtney said she found the list while going through Kurt's stuff and hung it up because she thought it was funny. And to me... It's not funny to me. Psychologist hat. It's a woman who's trying to display trophies to prove that she's the winner because simply being married to the man isn't enough. She had to try and shit on his previous relationships because she had to be the best relationship that Kurt has had. And I could be wrong about that diagnosis because I have a definite bias, but I just have to say I find it gross. And once again... Tracy Miranda deserved better. So, yeah. The family dramas are just getting started. First, we have a godparent drama side note. It has been said that when Frances was born, her godparents were the Cobain's lawyer, Rosemary Carroll, and her husband, Danny Goldberg. But after Kurt's death, Rosemary was adamant that Kurt was murdered and was very vocal against Courtney. So then it became said that Drew Barrymore was Francis's godmother and REM frontman Michael Stipe was her godfather. 
and my first specifically for Lauren side note. Rosemary Carroll is the former wife of Jim Carroll of the Basketball Diaries. Of course. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Well, that's interesting. Right? In 2003, Courtney was arrested for attempting to break in at her ex-boyfriend's house. She also overdosed on painkillers and threatened suicide, so Kurt's mother, Wendy, was made Francis's guardian. Courtney would regain custody two years later. But then in 2009, a court appointed Kurt's mother, Wendy, and his sister, Kim, as temporary guardians over Francis Bean, who was 17 at the time. I don't know the reason behind it. I think Francis was possibly going to try and get herself emancipated, but wasn't really ready for it yet. Uh, A judge issued a related temporary restraining order that prohibited Courtney from having any direct or indirect contact with Francis. The papers were uh, were filled with the heading motion to seal all documents relating to a minor and allegations of domestic violence. Francis's medical records were included with those documents, so I don't know what happened. And honestly, there is so much legal stuff that Courtney gets in over the years. We just do not have time to devote to all yeah. of it. So we're just going to say that the mother-daughter relationship was rocky at best. Yeah. So I'm going to do just a quick flip for a moment uh, to an album that I practically wore out in my youth. On November 18th, 1993, Nirvana recorded an acoustic performance for the series MTV Unplugged. Nirvana were joined by rhythm guitarist Pat Smear, cellist Laurie Goldston, as well as members of the band Meat Puppets. Nirvana played a lot of lesser-known material, as well as covers of songs by The Vaselines, Meat Puppets, Lead Belly, and David Bowie. It aired December 16th, and an album was released in November 1994 as the first Nirvana release after Kurt's death. The performance was said by many to be Kurt's greatest moment on stage and would earn the band a Grammy in 1996 for Best Alternative Music Performance. And now that we've come this far, I have to take us into the more difficult portion of the episode, starting with Kurt's health. And by difficult, I mean for me personally (laughs) (laughs) of course (laughs) yep yep she's getting through she's getting through throughout most of his life kurt suffered from chronic bronchitis as well as physical pain due to an undiagnosed chronic stomach condition kurt tried to relieve these pains with a variety of drugs friends who spent time with kurt said that while he started with pot around age 13 he soon was consuming lsd oxycodone, extreme amounts of alcohol, as well as abusing solvents. Kurt once claimed that, quote, it started with three days in a row of doing heroin, and I don't have a stomach pain. That was such a relief. Over the years, there were numerous overdoses. It has been said that Kurt experienced his first heroin overdose the morning after Nirvana appeared on Saturday Night Live. On August 19th, the day after Francis was born, Kurt allegedly snuck a drug dealer into a room in the labor and delivery ward where he then OD'd. It is said that he overdosed again in May 1993, and by the summer of 1993, Kurt was using almost daily. On June 1st, Courtney staged an intervention, and three days later, during a fight over Kurt's drug use, 
Courtney threw a juicer at him and then called the police. Kurt spent three hours in jail and was released on $950 bond. The domestic violence charges were later dropped. I also love that articles always said that uh, she threw a glass, but she admits it wasn't a glass. It was a full juicer. And Jesus, I almost respect it. I, I, I'm very throwy when I'm angry, so I, I get it. I get it. Uh, the fighting between the Cobains supposedly didn't stop there. Rosemary Carroll claims that Courtney told her Kurt was leaving her and asked Rosemary to find the meanest lawyer she could find. Rosemary claims that Courtney asked if there was any way to avoid the prenup that Courtney had signed. Rosemary also claims that a few weeks later, Kurt called her on March 1st, 1994, asking for Courtney to be removed from his will. That same day, Kurt was on tour in Germany and would be diagnosed with bronchitis and severe laryngitis. He flew to Rome the next day for medical treatment and was joined by Courtney on March 3rd. While staying in room 541 at the Hotel Excelsior, Courtney woke up in the morning after she arrived... Uh, the morning after she had arrived to find that Kurt had overdosed on a combination of champagne and rohypnol. Kurt was rushed to a hospital and remained unconscious for a day. After five days, Kurt was released from the hospital and flew home to Seattle. After Kurt's death, Courtney would call this Kurt's first suicide attempt. She would also later claim that when she found him, Kurt had a three-page note in his left hand claiming he was choosing death and, quote, I'd rather die than go through another divorce. Another uh, divorce? I think referring to his parents for being the first divorce. But also, no one's ever seen this note. So, And I love that I was saying, it's important for us to back up the things that weren't Courtney's fault. And now I turn the table. So, <clears throat> here's a question. And I know I'm getting ahead of myself already, yeah. but I gotta call it out. Did Kurt have a history of doing Rohypnol? Uh, not that I know of. I will I will offer yeah. um, a trigger warning for this term, uh, sexual assault. But yeah. uh, rohypnol, of course, is known by the slang term the date rape drug because it is typically what has been used for years being yeah. slipped into people's drinks. Um, it causes, you know, paralysis. It causes all kinds of things. So to me, she shows up and then conveniently... He ODs on rohypnol and champagne. Rohypnol, again, is tasteless, odorless, colorless. Like, that's how it can get slipped into someone's drink and they can yeah. drink it without knowing and then end up passing out and having, you know, horrific things happen. That just feels like that. I'm just going to call it right away. Yeah. That's the first red flag for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's, also, I know there's other, other red flags, but that yeah. just feels very kind of overt, you know? Well, she also, uh, I, I could be wrong, I believe... It was Rohypnol. Um, she had done some in front of an interviewer and then made the comment of like, oh, it's just basically like a kind of sed sedative. She got it from a doctor. She was prescribed it by a doctor in the UK. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, so and that's could possible. could very well be sure. her prescription that he used. Uh, she claimed that she found two empty blister packs of Rohypnol next to Kurt and that he had taken 60 pills. A doctor that treated Kurt allegedly said that was not true. Interesting. But of course, it was just their basic medical records 
from Italy, so I don't have access to those, unfortunately. I will just also say that, you know, from, and again, I don't have firsthand experience with this, thank God, uh, but from what I've heard, read, seen, etc., you know, it doesn't take 60 pills to require medical attention from that drug. If you, no. you if you've taken a, you know, a, a large single dose. Sure. Um, that someone slipped in your drink, people often need medical attention. So I'm just, what really gets me is the idea that it was like, he, he had an overdose. It was whatever. It's fine. He's fine. And then after he died, it was like, well, he did try to kill himself in Rome. It yeah. Was, it was never mentioned as a suicide attempt until after his death. Isn't that so interesting? So I find that wild. On March 18th, Courtney called the Seattle police to say that Kurt was suicidal and had locked himself in a room with a gun. The police arrived and confiscated four guns, 25 boxes of ammunition, and a bottle of pills from Kurt, who said he wasn't suicidal, but rather had locked himself in the bathroom in order to get away from Courtney. Oh, boy. On March 25th, worried about Kurt's drug use, Courtney arranged for another intervention. Ten people were involved, including friends, record company executives, and Dylan Carlson, one of Kurt's closest friends. Kurt was livid he ended up locking himself in a bedroom upstairs but after calming down kurt agreed to enter into a detox program on march 30th kurt and dylan carlson went to stan baker sports in seattle and paid 308 dollars for a remington m11 20 gauge shotgun dylan claims that kurt said he wanted to have it because of a recent burglary at the house The gun was registered under Dylan's name, as Kurt was not allowed since the police had seized his weapons just two weeks before. On March 31st, Kurt was taken to the airport, where he flew to Los Angeles. Pat Smear and a record company executive met Kurt at the airport and drove him to Exodus Recovery Center. He was assigned room 206. When friends went to visit Kurt, they said there was no indication that he had he was in any negative state of mind. On April 1st, Francis was brought in to visit with Kurt where witnesses say that Kurt happily played with his daughter. That same night, Kurt walked outside to have a cigarette and proceeded to climb a six-foot fence and leave the facility. Once Courtney realized that Kurt had left Exodus, she canceled his credit cards in the hope that he'd be forced to reach out to her. But before she got the chance to cancel them, Kurt used one to buy a ticket on Delta Flight 788 back to Seattle. He sat in in seat 2F. Doesn't matter, but I found it out and I'm bragging. (laughs) You should. (laughs) Uh, Prior to the flight, Kurt called Seattle limousine and arranged to be picked up at the airport, but requested that it not be a limousine. I understand limousine companies probably have multiple types of vehicles. I just found it very funny that he was specifically like, I need a limousine company that doesn't have a limousine. <laughs> so he gets, uh, where are we? Kurt uh, arrived in Seattle at 1.45 a.m. on April 2nd and went home to 171 Lake Washington Boulevard East. While he was there, he saw Michael DeWitt, better known as Callie. Callie was an ex-boyfriend of Courtney's who had been working for the Cobains as Francis Bean's nanny. 
Callie's girlfriend, Jessica Hopper, was also there, but apparently she slept through Kurt's visit. Callie said that he and Kurt sat silently watching TV for a bit before Callie went back to sleep, and then when Callie woke up again, Kurt was gone. Callie, side note! I may not know much about Callie, and I don't know how important he is to our story, but I learned he once dated Juliet Lewis. And I thought that if this is the only way I'm going to get Juliet Lewis a shout out on our show, then I better take it. A lot of listeners have very sweetly uh, called me their spirit animal. Uh, and to them, I say, Juliet is mine. Uh, she has an energy I really respond to and I adore her. So shout out to Juliet Lewis for no other reason than because I can. Yes, well, that's absolutely. But how much are we trusting that Callie is telling the truth? He's the only one who saw Kurt there that night. A few people claim to have seen him over the next few days, but nothing can be proven. Not to mention, it was said by numerous sources that by 1994, Callie was heavily into cocaine. So was Kurt there on April 2nd or not? I don't know. But Callie seems to believe that Kurt was there. On April 3rd and 4th, Kurt's official whereabouts were unknown, and on April 3rd, Courtney contacted private investigator Tom Grant and hired him to find her missing husband. And not only did Courtney hire Tom to find Kurt, but she also neglected to mention that Callie saw Kurt the night before. And is it possible that Callie didn't tell her? Sure. But according to phone records, Callie and Courtney spoke on the phone eight times on April 2nd. So you think that would be something that would come up? Yeah. Uh, on April 4th, Courtney calls the police and files a missing persons report. However, she claims to be Wendy O'Connor, Kurt's mother. The report says, quote, Mr. Cobain ran away from California facility and flew back to Seattle. He also bought a shotgun and maybe suicidal. On April 7th, Nirvana pulled out of the Lollapalooza Festival. The band's record label cited doctors' concerns about Kurt's health as the reason that they withdrew from negotiations to headline the festival. When Kurt was at the detox facility, Courtney was also in Los Angeles doing her own kind of detox. Courtney was staying at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills doing a hotel detox. A counselor would come to her room multiple times a day, every day. This version of recovery is said to be more private than if Courtney had outright entered a, reco a recovery center like Kurt did. So did Courtney try and detox privately so the press wouldn't find out that both of Francis's parents were in rehab at the same time? Because otherwise, I don't know why she chose that instead of an outright treatment center. So at the time, Kurt goes missing. Courtney is staying at the Peninsula and Kurt is at Exodus. The two were only 6.6 .6 miles or 10.6 kilometers apart, which is only like a 15-minute drive. But Kurt leaves Exodus, and he flies home. Doesn't go any... He could have gone to the hotel where Courtney was. He chose not to. On April 3rd, Courtney hires a private investigator, and on April 7th, Courtney was arrested at the peninsula after police arrived at a room to find it splattered in blood and vomit with a syringe and a blank prescription pad. 
After being released on $10,000 bail, Courtney checked herself into Exodus later that evening. The next morning on April 8th, an electrician from Vecca Electric named Gary Smith, who was at the house to install a security system that was requested after a recent break-in, found what he thought to be a mannequin in the greenhouse. This is a quote from Gary. I saw this body laying there on the floor. I thought it was a mannequin. Then I noticed it had blood in the right ear. I saw a shotgun laying across his chest, pointing up at his chin. What Gary had found was in fact the body of Kurt Cobain. Police were called to the house, and when they arrived, they found the French doors to the greenhouse locked, so they broke the west side door to gain entry. The police, the first police on scene, later said that as soon as they saw the body, they knew there was nothing they could do to help, so they only touched the wallet that was on the floor near the body to check for ID. They pulled out Kurt's driver's license, laid it on top of his wallet, and started taking photos of the scene. The first officers on scene called uh, in to request a homicide team at 9.50 a.m. Detectives arrived on scene at 10.15. The first officers handed over several Polaroids that were taken, as well as two rolls of 35-millimeter film. Now, this is the part uh, where I'm going to get a bit clinical because it's how my brain is choosing to process talking about this. <laughs> the greenhouse is approximately 19 by 23 feet and is situated above a detached double garage. Along the north and south walls, there are stainless steel planting trays. On one tray, there is a pile of dirt with bulbs in it. On top of the dirt is a note written in red ink and stuck into the dirt pile with a red pen. Detectives say it was a suicide note and that it is directed to Courtney and Francis and signed Kurt Cobain. The body is lying on his back on the floor with his head facing west and his feet facing east. There is a large drying puddle of blood to the left of the body and obvious trauma to the head. The Remington shotgun is between his legs with the barrel pointed towards the head and his left hand wrapped around the barrel. The shotgun is inverted with the trigger and magazine trapdoor pointing up. There is a spent casing to the left of the body, which is interesting since the casing would have released from the gun on the right side since the gun was upside down. But somehow the casing was found on the left as though it ricocheted off something on the right side although there was nothing on the right side, according to the photos. Along with the wallet, there was some cash, a three-quarter full can of Barks root beer, cigarette butts, and a Tom Moore cigar box full of drug paraphernalia like syringes, burnt spoons, cotton, etc. There was also a hat, two towels, a pack of cigarettes, a lighter, and a pair of sunglasses. On the floor next to the body's left foot, there is a brown paper bag containing a box with 22 live shotgun shells. The outside of the box says that it contains 25. Due to the injuries to his face, Kurt was only identifiable by his fingerprints. He was 27 years old, which brings me to the depressing and eerie 27 Club side note. The 27 Club is the name given to the numerous notable deaths of musicians at the age of 27. The idea first started in the 1970s when in the span of just two years, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones, and Jimi Hendrix all died at the age of 27. 
The concept was thrust back into the spotlight after Kurt's death in 1994 and again in 2011 after the death of Amy Winehouse. And yes, I'm sure these deaths are just merely coincidences, but when you look at the vast number of cases, it is shocking. I found a list that featured 72 musicians that all died at the age of 27. Oh my god. That's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, that's ghost set play. That nonsense right there. Yeah. Uh, one of the earlier ones is Robert Johnson, a Delta blues musician who used to sing songs about hellhounds, the crossroad, and the devil, which as a supernatural fan, I find terrifying. Yeah. Robert died at 27 in 1938. There's also Al Wilson of Canned Heat, Ron McKiernan of The Grateful Dead, Dave Alexander from The Stooges, Pete Ham of Badfinger, and even, as I mentioned earlier in our story, Mia Zapata was 27 when she was murdered. Right. And you know what other musician died at the age of 27? Kristen Pfaff, the bassist for Hole. Which brings me to a suspicious side note. Yes. Kristen was found in, a, in her bathtub after an alleged heroin overdose on June 16th, just two months after Kurt's death. While playing with the band uh, Janitor Joe, Kristen was scouted by Courtney Love and Eric Erlander, Erlinson of Hole. They invited Kristen to be their new bassist, as their previous bassist, Jill Emery, had recently left the band. After a while, Kristen agreed to join the band and moved to Seattle in 1993. In February 1994, Kristen entered a Minneapolis detox center for heroin addiction. After Kurt's death, Kristen decided to leave Hole and go back to Minneapolis, where she did a tour with Janitor Joe. Kristen returned to Seattle in order to retrieve the rest of her stuff on June 14th. At 9.30 a.m., just two days later, Kristen was found dead in her apartment by Paul Erickson. On the floor was a bag containing syringes and drug paraphernalia. Kristen's death was attributed to acute opiate intoxication. I have a lot of questions about her death. Everyone who saw her and spoke with her when she arrived back in Seattle said that she was clean. And I get that relapses happen, but she had plans to leave Minneapolis uh, the day she was found. And there was a packed U-Haul waiting for her outside. And the thing I find the sketchiest is the last person known to see her alive was her ex-boyfriend and ex-bandmate, Eric Erlinson, who apparently was with Kristen the night before she died. And when asked about her death, Eric said, quote, I admit I made some stupid mistakes with some people, and people are dead because of my stupid mistakes. That's what I want to say, and I want to use that so other people don't make the same mistakes that I made, and other people start understanding. I get emotional about this. We've all lost people. Due to the syringes spread out on the floor, the police automatically called the scene an overdose, and her autopsy which was done by the same doctor who performed Kurt's autopsy, which isn't uncommon given that they died in the same jurisdiction, 
uh, stated that Kristen's death was just classic suicide. Really? This doctor believed that Kristen overdosed. However, there's no record of a toxicology report ever being done. I cannot confirm that one was officially done or not because I can't find one anywhere and anyone associated to the case says one was not done, so I'm going with them on that. But it's just... It's putting so much faith in an Emmy that he did his actual job. <laughs> I, I want to believe he did, but I don't know. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that this doctor specifically lied about Kristen's death because he's hiding something. I just find it interesting that she died and apparently... Courtney had become convinced that Kurt was cheating on her, and since Kurt and Kristen were friends, maybe she assumed they were having an affair. After all, Kurt had said that Kristen was, quote, a fucking talented musician and a beautiful soul. And allegedly, Courtney once said to Kristen, quote, you fuck my guitar player, constantly make eyes at my husband, and now you're telling me how to sing? Just don't fuck with me because you'll regret it forever. She could also just be all talk, but who, you know, we never know. Uh, another thing that doesn't sit right with me about Kristen's death is she was, uh, in Courtney's interview with Rolling Stone in December 1994, I know that it was shortly after Kurt's death and Courtney had gone off the wagon, and who knows what she would have been doing at the time of this interview, but when asked about Kristen's death, Courtney said, quote, I had to go over there and get Eric away from the body. Kristen had been his lover for a really long time. But Paul Erickson was the one who found Kristen's body and then called the police. So did Eric and Courtney somehow show up before the cops? Or the cops let him in to the scene, to a crime scene? Be near the body? Like that, none of that makes sense to me. Um, although I guess the interview should be taken with a grain of salt. It starts with Courtney claiming she was wearing the brown coat that Kurt died in, but Kurt wasn't wearing a coat at the time of his death. Uh, one was at the scene, but he wasn't wearing it when he died, and I know because I've seen the photos, he wasn't wearing a coat. I don't want to talk much about the photos. Uh, back to the main topic of the episode, the police announced Kurt's death and immediately called it a suicide. One detective stated, quote, The autopsy has shown that Cobain died of a shotgun wound to the head, and at this time, the wound appears to be self-inflicted. At this time? Don't you normally wait for the full investigation to be completed before you make a public claim like that? Could it have something to do with the missing persons report that was filed just four days prior that included a policeman's handwritten note that said that Kurt, quote, bought a shotgun and maybe suicidal? Could that have maybe tainted what they were thinking? I also find it sad that his death was announced so quickly to the public simply because he was a celebrity. Do the fans want to know? Of course. But strangers should not find out before his own family. Kurt's dad, Don, learned of Kurt's death from the radio, and Kurt's grandparents learned about it from TV. And that's heartbreaking to me, especially for his grandmother, Iris, who Kurt was very close with. Which brings me to an enraging side note. A co-worker of the electrician who found Kurt's body called a radio station and said he had the scoop of the century and, quote, you're gonna owe me a lot of concert tickets for this one. 
I'm grossed out by it. The medical examiner uh, stated that everything about the situation pointed towards a suicide and that his death was estimated to have happened April 5th. The toxicology report stated that Kurt had trace amounts of Valium as well as 1.52 milligrams per liter of heroin in his system, which is nearly three times the lethal limit. And I know he had been a user for several years and that his tolerance was probably quite high, but with that much in his system, he was still able to lift a gun and pull a trigger, not to mention put away all of the drug stuff first because all of the syringes and everything was all packed neatly in a box. It just feels too much. It's like he didn't give himself time to feel the effects of the drugs he was taking before he died, so then just why bother taking them at all, especially at such a high amount? And I know this sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's been driving me crazy for 27 years. (laughs) So that's where we're at. Yep. The idea is that he injected himself more than once, put everything away, then pulled out a gun and shot himself. I just, I just don't buy it. The gun was also very long, like 45 and 5 8 inches long. Oh, wow. So then I start to wonder, could he even reach the trigger? Some people suggested maybe he used a foot, but according to police reports, he was wearing both of his shoes when he was found. But despite how us conspiracy theorists feel about the case, the Seattle police did investigate for a full 40 days and spent 200 hours interviewing Kurt's family and friends. But apparently the investigation didn't require photos because the photos taken at the scene, well, the police at the time decided not to develop them. An officer who worked the case, Sergeant Don Cameron, said, quote, We don't develop photographs of suicides. What? Later in his career, Sergeant Cameron would be accused of helping to cover up money that was stolen from an investigation. And when I say money, I'm talking $10,000. Cameron got wind he was going to be fired, so he retired quietly. In 1994, the film rolls were stored in a records room for safekeeping. A detective came across them in 2014 and worried the film would deteriorate if they were left for much longer, so the detective had the photos developed. The photos were released to the public, or at least the not-graphic ones, although seeing a simple shot of his foot, or one where you just saw literally a small section of an arm, was just horrifying to me. And I've seen terrible crime yeah, scene too much too much um, yeah but this one was just way too personal for me i think and allegedly courtney contacted the police in 1995 asking for the photos to be destroyed in order to prevent any mistaken release at any point uh the same detective who developed the photos also released photos of himself holding the gun to prove that the gun was still in the police's possession There had been a rumor going around that for a while that Courtney told police to destroy the weapon, but the photo only further fueled conspiracy theorists because the gun looks massive. But in the end, the police say without a doubt it was a suicide. Kurt's body was cremated, at which time Courtney asked that plaster casts be made of his hands, and I'd love to know how often they get a request like that, and then what do you do with them? You know, like, 
I just, I, it would weird me out, but I, people grieve in different ways. Um, I also read somewhere that Courtney found a piece of Kurt's skull with hair attached and she washed it and kept it. And again, I know that people grieve in their own way, but God, I really hope that's not true. <laughs> but Kurt was cremated and Courtney divided the ashes. Some were kept in a teddy bear, some in an urn. Some were taken to a Buddhist monastery in New York, where the ashes were ceremonially blessed and mixed into clay and made into a sculpture. Kurt's mother, Wendy, held a final memorial ceremony in May 1999, and Tracy Miranda was in attendance. A Buddhist monk chanted while Francis Bean scattered some of the ashes into McLean Creek in Olympia, Washington. Olympia was chosen as it was seen as the city where Kurt, quote, found his true artistic muse. And I wonder if that was a big F you to Courtney because the muse he found in Olympia was Tracy Miranda. Surprisingly supportive side note, I've been unsure about Courtney for decades, and I've surprised myself by saying some genuinely nice things about her tonight. But one thing I'll say is that she buried a handful of Kurt's ashes beneath a willow tree in their front yard. And while that may not seem like a big deal, the part that I really responded to was that Courtney later sold the house in 1997, but added a stipulation that she would be able to return one day and remove the willow tree. And while I may not understand any of that, I just find it so lovely and comforting for some weird reason. So the coroner estimates that Kurt died on April 5th. So he was lying in the greenhouse for almost three days and no one noticed. It's been said at least five people, including police, family, and friends, all checked the house three times. And yet no one thought to check the greenhouse? What about the private investigator Courtney hired? How did he not check the greenhouse? Well, we're going to get into it. Tom Grant and his assistant, Ben Klugman, were hired by Courtney to find Kurt. When asked about the greenhouse, Tom said he didn't even know it existed and that no one mentioned it to him. During an interview, Rosemary Carroll said she heard Courtney tell Dylan Carlson to check the greenhouse. And according to the medical examiner, Kurt was there for almost three days and nobody found him. And Tom said his first meeting with Courtney, red flags were popping up everywhere to the point where Tom started recording all of his conversations with Courtney, which I get because it caught Courtney in multiple lies, like how Callie was had supposedly seen Kurt April 2nd and when Tom was hired April 3rd, Courtney made no mention whatsoever to Kurt being seen on April 2nd. And after Kurt's death, when Tom wanted to interview Callie, who was supposedly the last person to see Kurt alive, Courtney said that Callie was in rehab somewhere, but she didn't remember where. Then she listed off various states where Callie might be. It's just super suspicious to me that he left town so soon after Kurt's death. Courtney also lied about how many times she called Kurt at Exodus Recovery. She told Tom she called Kurt at the treatment center once on March 31st, but records show that Courtney made 13 unanswered phone calls to Kurt that day. And something doesn't sit well with me is that Tom claims during his initial meeting with Courtney, she told him, save the American icon, Tom. 
doesn't sit well. Not great. Tom's biggest issues with the case uh, would become the basis for the conspiracy theorists who are known as Carruthers, Kurt Ruthers, who have spent nearly the past 30 years screaming that death's, Kurt's death is sketchy. One of the sketchy issues is the intense amount of heroin in his system. Tom claimed that the gun, shells, and note had no discernible fingerprints, and the gun was not checked for fingerprints by police until May 6, 1994, almost a month after Kurt's death. Tom also points out that forensic pathologist Dr. Cyril Wetch, who I mentioned during the Anna Nicole episode, ah. uh, looked at the autopsy and toxicology reports and said, quote, for most people, including addicts, 1.52 milligrams per liter is a significant level. And that would be, quote, a level that would induce a state of unconsciousness quite quickly. We're talking seconds, not minutes. Could someone have been in the room with Kurt at the time? It's possible. After all, since the shell casing was found on the left, even though the gun expelled it on the right, it's been suggested that something or possibly someone was on the right and the casing ricocheted off of them. And while the doors to the greenhouse were locked, when Kurt's body was found, it was a simple push-button lock, and if someone was with him at the time of his death, they could have easily pushed the button and then closed the door behind them. And just like with the Vanity Fair article, after Kurt's death, those closest to them were quick to suggest that maybe Courtney was involved. Rosemary Carroll, the Cobain's attorney, told Tom, who recorded almost all of his conversations, that she believed Kurt was murdered by Courtney. And I don't think that Courtney specifically did it, but I won't rule out that she may have been involved in some way, allegedly. Mm -hmm. And there's also the theory that Courtney hired a musician to take Kurt out. Eldon Hoke, who was best known as the drummer and lead singer of the shock rock band The Mentors, in 1996, while some authors were researching for a book about Kurt's death, Eldon claimed that Courtney offered him $50,000 to kill Kurt. But since investigative authors need a more need more than just a claim in order to publish it as fact, the writers met with Eldon to check out his story. They said Eldon was disheveled, drunk, and somewhat pathetic. So apparently, Eldon had a connection to a woman who Courtney recruited as a drummer for her band Hole. In late December 1993, Eldon claims that Courtney approached him at a store that he was known to hang out in asking him to kill Kurt. Alden claims that Courtney told him that he should make it look like a suicide. The man behind the counter at the store, who happened to be the manager, remembers the day Courtney Love pulled up in a limo and got out to speak with Alden for a few minutes, but the man doesn't know what was said. Then this manager claims that in late March 1994, Courtney called the store looking for Alden, but he had gone on tour with his band. The manager claims Courtney said, quote, I need to talk to him. He's got a job to do. Now, all of this, of course, is circumstantial. The manager, if we can even trust him, claims that Eldon has a reputation for doing anything for a buck. Then the show Hard Copy gets wind of the story, brings Eldon on. Uh, he was given a polygraph test on March 6, 1996, which led, him to, which led them to believe his story was completely truthful. Eldon was outright asked, did Courtney Love ask you to kill Kurt Cobain? And his answer showed a 99.91% certainty 
that he was telling the truth. Is he telling the truth? Or has he told himself this story so many times that he truly believes it? Well, documentary director Nick Broomfield believed it enough that he had, he interviewed Eldon for his new documentary, Kurt and Courtney. So Nick flies to California to interview Eldon, where he claimed again that Courtney had recruited him to kill Kurt, but he didn't go through with it. Then Eldon claims that he knows who did kill Kurt and claims it was a musician named Alan Wrench from the band Kill Alan Wrench. <laughs> Apparently, the band's website declares that the band is, quote, all about the four rock essentials, satanic worship, alcoholism, spousal abuse, and self-destructive drug use. Which is <laughs> unsettling at best. I've, yeah, not, I've not heard that before. Yeah, no. So Eldon gives this recorded interview uh, to say he was propositioned to kill Kurt, but that Alan was the actual shooter. Eight days after the interview, Eldon was found dead on the railroad tracks in Riverside, California. He'd been hit full on by a freight train and was decapitated in the accident. The official cause of death was listed as misadventure. Mm. When Alan uh, was later interviewed about Eldon's death, Alan claims Eldon was one of his best friends. Then Alan said he was the last person to see Eldon alive. Alan said, quote, I drove him to the liquor store that night, but I dropped him off in front of the store. And then I went to pick up this chick. I never saw him again. Later, I heard he got run over by a train a few minutes after I dropped him off. Is any of this true? I don't know. Is it all just these guys' way of making money off Kurt's death and claiming that they have information that people might pay to hear? Possibly. Eyewitnesses claim that in the late 90s, Alan seemed to come into some sort of money, although he would never go into details when people asked him about it. So I'm all over the place about how I feel about any of this, which is the right time to move on to Kurt's memorial. <laughs> A public vigil was held April 10th at Seattle Center's Flag Pavilion. An estimated 7,000 people attended. Pre-recorded messages from Christ and Courtney were played for the crowd. Dave Grohl had no part of it. And honestly, I'm not surprised. Dave later said the news of Kurt's death was, quote, probably the worst thing that has ever happened to me in my life. Get the blankets. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to hold him. Probably for more reasons than that. Courtney arrived at the end of the vigil and handed out some of Kurt's clothing to the fans that were still there. In Courtney's recording, she read Kurt's suicide note. So we're going to talk about the suicide note. To start with, the note was written in red ink and was found on top of a pile of dirt with the red pen stabbed through it. The letter is addressed to Bada, Kurt's childhood imaginary friend, which is kind of lovely, although maybe that's not the right word for it. Um, and as a heartbreaking side note, when Kurt was about two years old, he was recorded saying Bada's name. And I don't know how it's out there, but there is a clip somewhere on YouTube of toddler Kurt calling Bada over and over again. And it is probably the most heart-wrenching thing in the world. I don't know uh, if it's because he was so young or it's because it was so pure, but it damn near broke me. <laughs> Just, I still hear it, uh, even though it's long gone. So the letter is addressed to Bada, which some have speculated was because maybe Kurt didn't feel like there was any real person who would understand what he was saying. 
Some also suggest that Botta was an intimate childhood secret that even Courtney didn't know about, so this suggests that Kurt absolutely did write the note. And I truly believe he did write it, at least up to the part where he signed his name. For those who haven't seen the note, I will try and post a copy of it somewhere, but throughout it, Kurt talks about how he hasn't felt excitement about music, whether listening to it or creating it for a few years. He's thankful for the life that he has, and even mentions his, quote, goddess of a wife who sweats ambition and empathy and a daughter who reminds me too much of what I used to be. It seemed... Uh, throughout the note that he'd become very disenchanted with the music industry and that music became less of a passion and more of a job. And as someone who was known for constantly writing in his journal in the months prior to his death, he'd almost ceased writing in them at all. Which makes you think that possibly maybe he was just done with music. And maybe it had something to do with the fact that they got so super famous so fast. Yeah. He never truly learned how to adapt to the fame that he had achieved. Apparently, years later, Dave Grohl spoke with Howard Stern and said just prior to Kurt's death, the band was in fact breaking up. Kurt ended the note with a quote from a Neil Young song uh, that said, quote, It's better to burn out than fade away, which I interpreted to mean that he'd rather quit than drag out his career and make music he didn't care about. It was signed, Peace, Love, Empathy, Kurt Cobain. And that is the point in the note when I think he stopped writing. Because after that, the handwriting becomes more erratic and the letters get larger and appear to be written in a by a completely different person. The final portion says, quote, Francis and Courtney, I'll be at your altar. Please keep going, Courtney, for Francis, for her life will be much happier without me. I love you. I love you. Now, I know I'm not a handwriting expert, but it's like night and day. And yes, some may argue he was feeling more effects from the heroin and that altered his write writing. Sure, many hand handwriting experts have seen the note and while some claim it was written by the same person, others have said it was clearly written by two people. A forensic linguist looked at the note and said the top portion of the note appears to be a different style in handwriting as well as a different style linguistically from the bottom portion. The main part of the note is written about Kurt's relationship to music and the last four lines are written about his relationship to his family. And I know what you're thinking. Am I really suggesting that Kurt wrote a note as a way to retire from the music business and to cover up his murder, someone added a few lines at the end to seem like a suicide note? And while that's crazy, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, and the big reason I feel that way is that there were more than 20 notebooks filled with his writing. Could someone have used that to try and copy his style and just did a super shitty job? For sure. Could Kurt have written the full note himself and his writing just got sloppier the less sober he got? Sure. And Rosemary Carroll the Cobain's attorney told private investigator Tom Grant that she found a piece of paper in Courtney's backpack, which had been left at Rosemary's house. The paper was filled with the alphabet that looked as though someone was practicing writing in a certain way, as though someone was practicing forgery. Now, why on earth would Courtney have a paper like that? Photos of it have been posted, and again, it doesn't make sense to me that it would exist for any reason other than to try and copy Kurt's handwriting. A forensic document examiner looked at the practice sheet as well as the original note, which Courtney keeps in a safe deposit box. The examiner said the practice sheet contains, quote, 
letter combinations of specific letters that are found in the bottom portion of the suicide note. The examiner also said it was possible that someone with some skill could imitate his writing, especially in those last lines. And where would someone get samples of his writing? Well, in his lifetime, Kurt had filled those dozens of notebooks with various drawings, letters, shopping lists, song lyrics, journal entries, all of that. Well, in 2002, Courtney thought it would be a great idea to compile all of those into a 280-page book. The book was published a month after a self-titled Nirvana Greatest Hits album was released, which all feels like such a cash grab to me. Uh, but those journals, I'll be straight with you. Uh, I did a lot of research for this episode, but the one thing I refused to do was read his journals. I cannot bring myself to do it. It feels way too personal, and I don't think he would have wanted them out there in the world for everyone to see. In 2018, Frances Bean said she will never read the journals either and that she regretted Courtney's decision to publish them. And yes, I avoided a sneak peek into the victim's mind for what I'm calling my principles. <laughs> if someone else wants to read them, by all means, no judgment. But again, this is so personal for me. But what I did do, uh, I scarfed down multiple books and documentaries. I think I did three documentaries and five books. And I scoured the internet until ungodly hours. And I think this is maybe some of the latest times that I've stayed up while researching. And I know it's because I've been mentally connected to this case for almost 30 years. And so I've put so much pressure on myself that I need to make sure that I present it at least half well. And that's the thing with this case. It's been 27 years since Kurt's death and people are still talking about it. A spokesperson for the Seattle Police Department said the department receives at least one weekly request to reopen the investigation. It's so crazy to look back and realize that he was only part of mainstream music for about three years before his death, and yet it seems like so much longer because he had such a profound impact on music at the time. Many bands wrote tributes to Kurt, uh, such as Tearjerker by the Chili Peppers, Friend of a Friend by Foo Fighters, Let Me In by R.E.M. Uh, in 2005, a sign was put up in Aberdeen, Washington as a tribute to Kurt. The sign read, Welcome to Aberdeen, Come As You Are. Which, for those who aren't Nirvana fans, Come As You Are was one of their big hits. On April 10th, 2014, Nirvana was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Kurt was posthumously inducted along with Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl. 2014 was the first year they were eligible to be inducted. Rolling Stone included Kurt on its list of 100 greatest of all time. Uh, he was listed under songwriter, guitar player, and singer. Uh, which brings me to something that I'd like to bitch about in an utterly shocking <laughs> side note. Nirvana did not win a Grammy in Kurt's lifetime. The band won Best Alternative Performance for MTV Unplugged in New York at the 1996 Grammy Awards. Nevermind was nominated for Best Alternative Music Album in 1991, but lost to R.E.M.'s Out of Time. But this got me wondering what other artists have been foolishly denied Grammys, and honestly, after looking it up, I'm now even more pissed at the Grammys. Someone explained to me how this list of artists 
does not have a Grammy. Diana Ross, Snoop Dogg, Bjork, Nicki Minaj, Katy Perry, Sia, The Beach Boys, Queen, ABBA, and Journey. Wow. What the fuck, Grammys? That's, I'm annoyed. That is a pretty shocking list. You're right. My God. It's too much. It's almost like a hit television show that ran for six years that had great characters, storylines, relationships, and also tackled sociopolitical issues, not winning any Emmys. Anyway. You know what? It's exactly like that. (laughs) (laughs) Robbed. Robbed. Now, very quickly, I just wanted to point out, Yeah. uh, of course, we spoke about the 27 Club earlier. Um, and then you just mentioned that it's been 27 years since his death. Yep. yep, that clued into me partway through and I realized what is happening. And you know what it is? Synchronicity. Synchronicity. Well, let's synchronize our watches while I go take a tinkle. <laughs> We're going to be right back with more about Kurt Cobain on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. Welcome back to our Kurt Cobain episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Where did we leave off? Um, synchronicity. That's where we left off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what are the odds we're, we're talking about it? 27 years. He was 27. It's just, there's too many. There are 72 artists. Like, I can't. <laughs> My brain is. And I'm also only 27. I'm closer to 72. <laughs> oh, I am a, I am on Wolf. the inside. That's for sure. That is for sure. Uh, well, listen, obviously we got to wrap things up soon, but uh, let's get yeah. into what else you got for us. Well, I'm going to try and power through this uh, so we can get through it and have at least just a chance to speak <laughs> before this ends. I'm sorry for what emotional journey we're going to end up going on. But I thought, you know, why don't we check in? with some of the people we've mentioned so far in our episode to see what life has been for them since yeah. Kurt's death. In 1995, Nirvana bassist Chris Novoselic formed the band Sweet 75. He would go on to release an album with the band Eyes Adrift, two albums with the band Flipper, and two albums with the band Giants in the Trees. Chris is a political activist and is known for making appearances to advocate electoral reform and in 2016 he earned a bachelor of science degree from washington state university i just read his name and i fucking blushing like a schoolgirl. nirvana drummer dave grohl joined tom petty and the heartbreakers briefly and in 1994 formed the band foo fighters with dave on guitar which i am fascinated by because i can't play one instrument i'm I'm just wildly fascinated by people who can play multiple. I've read that uh, Dave doesn't read music. He just plays by ear, which is also wild to me because he's so insanely talented. And I'm just so happy that the internet loves him. It just makes me so full of joy. Foo Fighters have released 14 studio albums to date, including Wasting Light in 2011, which features Chris Novoselic on bass. 
And since I got bitchy about the Grammys earlier, I'll go so far to point out Foo Fighters have won 12 Grammys. I still think that Nevermind was robbed. Dave joined Queens of, of the Stone Age in 2001 and has been part of two of their seven albums. Dave was also part of all four Tenacious D albums, which leads me to a completely unnecessary shout out to Jack Black. <laughs> uh, so now that we've checked in with Kurt's band family, let's check in with his immediate family. We're about to take a journey. Francis Bean is now older than Kurt was when he died. And I find that fact so deeply depressing. Mm -hmm. And it just further reminds us of just how long she's had to live without him. Frances is now an artist who studied at Bard College. In 2010, she debuted a collection of artwork titled Scumfuck under the pseudonym Fiddle Tom. Frances is also a model who was the face of a Marc Jacobs spring-summer campaign in 2017. In 2010, uh... Francis inherited 37% of Kurt's estate, which means that from then on, she controls the publicity rights to his name and image. So in 2019, she launched a new clothing collection inspired by Kurt's artwork called Kurt Was Here. I'm going to go online after and see if I'm going to buy something. <laughs> and the answer is, I probably will. Francis and Courtney's relationship has been a real roller coaster over the years, but it seems that they are on the same side once again. Francis began dating musician Isaiah Silva in 2010, and they moved in together a year later. The couple got engaged, then broke up, then got back together, engaged again, and in 2014, Francis and Silva got married. In 2016, the couple decided to divorce, but wanted to do so amicably. And at first, everything was fine. That is, until they questioned the ownership of Kurt's 1959 Martin D. 18E guitar, the very one he used in the infamous MTV Unplugged in New York set. Silva claims that Francis gave him the guitar as an anniversary present, six months before their wedding. Francis denies this, saying it's a treasured family heirloom. But this gross fucker won't let this poor girl have her dad's guitar. He decides to take her to court. Oh my god. So a lengthy court battle ensues. Silva claims that during the relationship, Courtney moved into the house and started supplying Francis with drugs, which led to Francis nearly dying in their home while Silva was there with his young daughter. Silva then claims that Courtney, along with Britney Spears' former manager Sam Lufty, who was Courtney's business manager at the time, uh, an actor from 13 Reasons Why named Ross Butler, and a chauffeur named Jan Juchtman, hacked into his iMessage account and sent out messages, making it appear as though Silva was despondent and contemplating suicide. Silva alleges that this was done as part of a plan to kidnap and murder him. Whoa. Silva then claimed that Courtney and Lufty were threatening Silva's friends, family, and bandmates in an attempt to turn them against him. In June 2016, Silva claims that Sam Lufty, Ross Butler, and Jan Juchtman broke into his house, grabbed his genitals while threatening him. Silva was then allegedly forced into a vehicle while a friend called 911. When police arrived, Silva said that Sam Lufty concocted a false story that prevented the LAPD from arresting them. Silva 
says his family was threatened, so he agreed to go along with the story that they were all just old college friends and that the kidnapping had been a prank. Even though Sam Lufty is like twice the age yeah. and looks it, so there's no way these people were college buddies, but okay. And while Russ Butler claims he wasn't there, there are police reports and court documents that talk about how police helicopters were involved and listed Lufty, Butler, and Yuckman as kidnappers. This whole thing is wild to me. Francis and Silva's divorce was finalized in 2017. Francis won the rights to their home and was free from paying any spousal support, which thank God, because at that point, it was estimated that Kurt's estate was worth $450 million. And while Francis doesn't have all of it, even if she did, I still wouldn't want her to spend a single cent on this asshole. And just when it seemed like court was going in her favor, somehow the judge awarded Silva the guitar. And the worst part, the guitar ended up at Julian's auction house. Courtney and Francis attempted to get the guitar before it could be auctioned off, but sadly nothing worked, and the guitar ended up selling for $6,010,000. Record-setting side note, the sale of the guitar set uh, the record for the most expensive guitar and most expensive memorabilia memorabilia ever sold. A year before, the green sweater that, like the guitar, was also featured in the MTV Unplugged, uh, sold for $334,000, making it the most expensive sweater ever sold at auction. Jesus. Julian's estimated the guitar would sell for $1 to $2 million. However, bidding surpassed a million before the auction ever even opened. Julian's never officially mentioned Silva's name when discussing the guitar, but if he was given possession of it and suddenly a couple years later the guitar is auctioned off, that's a pretty big fuck you to Francis and Courtney. And it just makes it me feel worse for Francis. Now this dude sold something that clearly meant nothing to him, but a lot to her and got millions for it. And then you wonder, did he only pursue a relationship with her in the beginning simply because she was a rock icon's daughter? How much does something like that mess you up? I don't know if Frances is in therapy now, but she was when she was a child. According to Frances, Courtney sent her to a therapist around the age of four, and after a year, she was then told her father committed suicide. Oh. So they got her used to uh, therapy and talking with someone, and then it was like, oh yeah, and by the way, I need to believe they told her before that that her father had died. Who, who knows? It could have just been, he's away. I don't know how they Right, right. That. Uh, Silva also made claims that Kurt's mother, Wendy, told him she believed that Courtney was involved in Kurt's alleged suicide. Wow. And while the divorce and the guitar legal battle was over, there was still the legal dispute between Silva and his ex-mother-in-law. However, it seems as though Silva didn't show up to court and then didn't supply an accurate email address or something. But it's said that Silva might be representing himself in the case now, which just feels like setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. I just have a lot of questions about him, but I just don't want to waste any more time on this dill hole. Of course. I did specifically write dill hole. Thank you. In 2019, Courtney took out a five-year restraining order against Sam Lufty for verbal abuse and threats over the phone and through social media posts. So as, as we learned from the Britney Spears episode, it turns out Lufty isn't exactly the best dude. And speaking of Courtney, despite the fact that it's 
none of our business, I came across a list of men that she's dated since, and I don't think I knew of any of them, and I find it fascinating, and I assume that our listeners would also find it fascinating. So here we go, men who Courtney allegedly dated. Noel Fielding, good for her. <laughs> uh, Scott Wayland, Trent Reznor, Edward Norton, Gavin Rossdale, and Steve Coogan. Courtney talked about how much she hated one of her albums and said, quote, but like Steve Coogan or Crack, it's one of my life's greatest shames. Which feels pretty bad. And I just want to know what went down between them. They were supposedly only together for two weeks. Yeah. I just want to know what went down because it seems like it was a lot. Again, it's not my business. But if people know... Very quickly, no. uh, very quickly, side note, yes. Lauren takes things on a tangent, side note. <laughs> I just want to preface this by saying I think Steve Coogan is a comedic genius, and uh, I think that Alan Partridge is some of the funniest shit that ever in existence. Uh, but <laughs> he allegedly, this is alleged, but from yes. what I have heard, uh, he was married and had a child, and I think when he went through his divorce, he went a little uh, party. He went on a little party, party tangent. Mm. And there, I think it was when he was filming, it was when he was filming something with Owen Wilson that there was rumor that they were like getting into a lot of trouble, like a lot of cocaine, mm. a lot of strippers, like that kind of stuff. So sure. I have heard that also about Courtney Love that she said that that was one of her biggest regrets. And I was like, wow. Yeah. Really? That, um, that feels that, wow coming from her yeah um so i don't know i don't know what the you know kind of deal is there but i will say that that there has been again speculation that he mm. went through at least a phase of some real getting your yayas out you know what i mean kate yep well you know what folks i said if somebody knows i should have known she would know yeah. Also, very quickly, uh, uh, yeah. Lauren continues the tangent. Side note: um, She and Ed Norton dated uh, secretly for years, and wow. at one point, I can't remember when, her house was burglarized, and she had a bunch of very, very expensive jewelry stolen, and it was all gifts from Edward Norton. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. I've got one more thing about Edward Norton. Side note, please. I went to a casting director's awards show um, before the pandemic. And basically it was like honoring greatness in casting things. And so sure. there was a woman, and I'm so sorry I forget her name, but she cast Primal Fear, I believe, with Edward Norton, which of course was like one of his sure. big things. And she told a story about how he came in for the audition and he went into the room and said, can I have the room, please? Which is an actor floored me the idea that I would turn to the casting people and go could I have the room for a minute I, I was shocked I would never sure. I did talk to some casting directors that night that said some actors do it that again just truly shocked me but anyway she came in eventually to see if he was ready and he was sitting on the floor and then she got onto the floor with him and they they played the scene in the moment and then he booked the role and I was like what a bold choice the balls on that man for lack of a better term because think about it 
you've cleared the room. He's a, he's never really worked, I don't think, prior to this. He clears the room. I need time. Doesn't tell them he's ready. Waits for them to come to him. Is sitting on the floor and then the, is lucky enough that the casting director is like, okay, I'll play ball. It could have gone the complete opposite way. He could have become a pariah. But anyway, I thought that was fascinating. That is insane. Yeah. I, I don't even. And I love that my instinct was... They give awards for casting things. So clearly whoever cast Superstore got one. I believe they were nominated. I believe they, they were nominated. They should have been. They should have been. You know what? Casting isn't always uh, recognized in awards shows, which I do think is a shame because I do think that it is a huge part of the success of anything. Yes. So. There are multiple things where I will annoy my husband. <laughs> I could stop there. Um, but... Where we'll be watching a show or we'll be watching a movie or something. And I just will repeatedly go, but it's just like so perfectly cast every time. So, yes. Oh, God, I'm running. I'm running long. I'm running long. No, no, it's okay. Um, it's me. Oh, I've derailed us. No, well, it's for the best because now we get into a section that I've entitled my feelings. <laughs> it's not my theory. It's my feelings. I'm not going with my head. I'm going with my heart. Every case that we do tends to have an effect on me in one way or another. Sometimes I'm familiar with the victim or the story beforehand, whereas sometimes it's all relatively new information for me. But this case in particular was incredibly personal for me. It really took me back to a time I had almost forgotten. I have spent the last week feeling like I did. When he first died, <laughs> I was reminded that in 1999, Rolling Stone magazine came out with a special 90s issue that listed Kurt as the artist of the decade. He was featured on the cover in a suit and tie, and I not only hung that cover on my wall, but I put it in a frame because I was scared to hurt it with pushpins or stain it with any sort of thumb thumbtack. And as creepy as it is to admit... So publicly, after coming across the same cover on Google, I was immediately reminded of just how much time I used to spend just staring into his eyes. <laughs> and I learned a lot of things about Kurt that I hadn't known before. And a lot of those things were unpleasant at best. Uh, some of those things I chose not to mention in my notes, partially because I had to make this episode something that I could get through personally. And sometimes you have to make cuts for the sake of time and relevance. Was he the greatest human? No. Did he do things that he regretted? Of course. Was he also known for being funny and incredibly smart and had such a, uh, a love for creating imagery, whether it was through his art or through his music? Yes. <laughs> oh, Christy. Uh, the, the amount of times in the last week... That I've seen photos of him and in earnest said, God, it's a shame I'll never know what his lips taste like. <laughs> oh my God. Just, it's again, I have reverted back to 14 and I don't know how to handle it. Um, he was also a huge animal lover and his favorite food was Kraft macaroni and cheese, which I find incredibly endearing. Although I think it had more to do with the fact that 
It was probably gentle on his stomach issues, but still, I find it charming. And it's this level of delusional fangirling that has forced me to take a lot more breaks than usual while researching. And I really struggled <laughs> with my notes uh, and getting them written in a timely manner because therapist hat it wasn't really about the notes i was just trying to postpone feeling the emotions that this was all drudging up uh and looking at crime scene photos was one of the worst parts of my week i gasped i genuinely gasped at a photo that just showed a section of his arm and that was it like it's a problem uh it just reminded me of how much kurt meant to me when i was younger he came along at a time when i was a brooding teen who was struggling with overwhelming emotions, and as cheesy as it is to say, he made me feel like he understood. It rips my heart out that he spent so many years trying to make something of himself, and when it actually happened, he just didn't know how to cope with it. Before his death, Kurt had been talking with friends about wanting to go in a more acoustic direction with his music because he wanted to be thought of as, quote, a songwriter and uh, a singer and songwriter as opposed to a grunge person. And as a fan, it breaks my heart to know he wanted to be known as more than just grunge, and he ended up becoming the face of the genre. He is synonymous with grunge, and I just, it's sad that I know that he would hate that. Uh, and finally, a brief lighter moment in my pout parade. For those who want to know and haven't asked, um, and for those who don't want to know and don't have the ability to stop me, uh, I think Nevermind is easily one of the best albums of all time. To me, it is 90s perfection. And if I have to narrow it down, my top five favorite Nirvana songs in no particular order are All Apologies, Heart Shaped Box, Molly's Lips, Breed, and In Bloom. And there is also a special place in my heart for On a Plane. Uh, and I know that I just said those were not in any particular order, but my number one favorite is Breed. Uh, also, Penny Royalty from the MTV Unplugged album makes me overly emotional because he performs it alone. And as you know, I like it raw. <laughs> Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. First of all. <laughs> You, mm -hmm. you did great. And if I Bless can just say, I'm going to just hold up my notes and say, look how many notes I took. Look what a good job she did, everyone, <laughs> class. The fact of just the praise that we <laughs> require, you don't need a therapist hat for that. Nope. You don't. But in yep. the, in the, <laughs> for the sake of time, I'm just going to go through some things I've written down very quickly. I'm please, glad you're having please. an emotional experience. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> Quickly, yes, Dave Grohl. Now, what's amazing is is that <sighs> I have been a fan of the Foo Fighters, a huge fan of the Foo Fighters, and Dave Grohl for years. And I feel like yeah. this is one of the few times where uh, we intersect in of one course. of our, our likes. Um, yeah. Usually we choose different uh, band members from the same band, for example. But fun fact for you, did you know? Dave Grohl is bigger than us. Oh, of course. Did you know that his first album, the first Foo Fighters album, he played all of the instruments? He played bass, guitar, drums, everything. Right? Because yeah. it was supposed to be a uh, one-guy, one-man band. And then he, you know, cast it out. Um, also, mm. uh, being a drummer for him, 
there's a documentary I can't remember which one I watched and he he talks basically about how it's like it's hell if you want to be a drummer for Dave Grohl's band because he has a very high standard and he of course has been known to fire people without telling them stuff like that anyway oof yep so I'm just gonna just go through very quickly the thoughts I had written down and then I'll get into my theory Um, of course Nick Brumfield uh, Kurt and Courtney uh, shout out Grim Sleeper another documentary from another episode of this show ooh that was a high-pitched noise i just made i liked it a lot eric erdlanson who was the guitarist from hole uh yeah with courtney who i should also add that band went through a lot of incarnations with a lot of different members but those two always stayed in it they dated Mm. yeah prior to all of this which is interesting to me because i find it interesting that she kept him that close she kept callie her ex-boyfriend that close close enough to be a nanny but the second there was anything about Kurt having even a connection to an ex, it was too overwhelming for her. I have thoughts about mm. that as well. Of um, course. Okay, what else have I written down? Okay. <sighs> Listen, I'm just going to say something very quickly. I won't dwell on it. And then I'll get sure. into my theory. It's so tough to know. Because I feel, again, like we're so clouded by the way things ended up. That it's so hard to look at this objectively in some ways. Now, do I think he committed suicide? I don't. So I do think that there was something else at play. I want to say that out of the gate. I'm not suggesting that that I'm necessarily wavering on that. However, I do feel like it's so hard to know how much you could trust about who he said he was or how he represented himself. Because... On one hand, you know, he was this poster child for the grunge movement, very brooding, very troubled, whatever. I do think he was a very troubled individual. But it's 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 hard to me to determine because, for example, he said he lived under this bridge and then Chris Novoselic was like, no, he didn't. So it's like how much of it was exaggerated from from trauma or perhaps mental health situations he may have been encountering and how much of it could it have been i offer people are going to come for me yeah could it have been that that was part of the thing he created that persona oh, he, he, created. he put a he put on a persona because i for sure don't he did. totally buy that he didn't like the fame i understand that people are going to say lauren you're a monster but no. i don't i don't know there's so much of it again that letter that he wrote that was that what was what is known now as a suicide letter which does feel like it's more about a retirement from the music industry it also doesn't necessarily read that's a retirement from the music industry if you look at it through another lens it's kind of just like nirvana's breaking up and this is my statement about it i don't know that i buy that he hated being famous and that he hated he may have hated being famous and, and fame and what that entailed but i don't think that he hated being like a musical genius who was regarded in that way and I think it speaks to, therapist hat on, I think it speaks to that when he's like, well, I also wanted to do some acoustic stuff so people really know me as a songwriter. Like that feels to me, you don't say that and then in the same breath say, but I don't want to be in the music industry. You know what I'm saying? Right. So to me, I just think there was, I'm curious about what happened behind closed doors. I'm curious about how much of the stuff with Courtney was real, how much of it was was sensationalized i don't know we'll never know 
is the first thing. Now, do I think Courtney Love is a super stable person? No, I do not. Do I think she's an extremely intelligent person? Yes, I do. Do I think it's possible that she could have concocted whatever for whatever, you know, fame machine? I do. Yeah. Um, I know there was also talk in some things that I had read, read over the years that he had really been helpful in helping write live through this a lot of those songs those early whole songs he was a part of writing is, is like one of the you know conspiracy theories which doesn't seem impossible because they definitely have that vibe to them and I think live through this is actually right. a really great album I had also heard the rumor that him and Kristen Faff Paff Faff however you say it Faff Faff yeah. were getting closer whether it was romantic or not I had mm-hmm. heard that from a few different sources as well but then it's like, you know, when you think about the details, like if it's true that he hired, he had a drug dealer come to the hospital, to the maternity ward to sell him drugs and then did drugs and overdosed in the maternity ward. If that is true, one, it does suggest, OK, this person is battling something bigger than him for right. sure. But two, it's also like, man, that must have been a pretty big thing you're battling because that's a pretty shitty time to do that and mm-hmm. and I would think that for many they would at least have left the hospital but I understand that he was famous so he yeah. probably felt like he was hidden anyway I know that I'm like talking in circles but I guess for me it's just like I do think it's interesting when you try and look at it from like a when you try and look at it from more of a objective eye that it's like again I think it's more me also and and we talk so much about the patriarchy and misogyny and all those things that I'm of like course. I think we also need to like just keep in mind that um, you know, we only see what they showed us and we, we don't know the full, full story. So, okay, yep. now I'm going to get into my theory, which is far more interesting to many, I'm sure. So this recent break-in, I don't know if we know mm. um, that happened before his death. I don't know if we know if that's true or false or what have you, but that also can be easily faked. You can hire anybody to do that, any friend, put on a ski mask, true. here you go. I do think it's very interesting because it seems... Courtney went into this hotel detox. Detox. And you said yourself, you're like, well, why didn't you go to a real one? And the answer to that, in my opinion, is that she wanted an alibi where she was also able to move around and have access to a phone. Because if you go into detox or rehab, your phone calls are going to be monitored. You're not going to have the freedom to be able to come and go as you please or make calls at any time of the day. Right. Right. We know that she had said to certain people, like, search the house. I, I think at one point you mentioned, like, search the greenhouse was brought up at some point. But then yeah. the private investigator didn't even know there was a greenhouse. It feels to me like she was like, OK, I know that he and I'm not saying that she physically killed him because I don't believe that either. But she knew that he was dead there. And then she was like, search for him. I'm in going to detox. And then it's like, shit, he's been there for days nobody's found him i guess i should send somebody to go and put in some security footage um you know paraphernalia because we had a recent break-in attempt like it, it feels to me like that guy it was not a coincidence that that guy found him there that she was just getting desperate because the body had been there for so many days that she was right. trying to lead people <laughs> you know what i mean Interesting. i wondered if because she put herself into a specific rehab center the night before he was found because she knew that guy was going there interesting yeah i wondered if it was like a are you specifically going there because it was 
well, now I have an alibi because I've been here. And if he killed himself this morning, then I couldn't have done it because I was here. But we all, again, oh, 100%. I don't think she did it. But but I think that she wanted that alibi. I think she wanted that alibi for sure. That still, del- still allowed her to be able to use the phone as she wanted to continue mm-hmm. to puppeteer as she saw fit. And that makes sense. Right. And I think that then when it was like, no one's finding him, she's like, fuck. So she sent the repair guy or whoever he worked for and yeah. probably called the night before. Can you go tomorrow to, ch- to, you know, install this thing? And that's when she literally threw the shit fit in the hotel room and checked herself in because then she's like, okay, they're going to find him now. That's what it seems like to me. Interesting. Well, I also have questions about the man who found him. Well, that too. Because his quote, uh, oh, I don't have it here, but he said he thought that Kurt was simply sleeping when he found the body and thought it was a mannequin. But uh, once he noticed a bit of blood coming out of an ear, that's when he knew there was a problem. But from my understanding, Kurt had to be identified by fingerprints due to the massive injury to his face. And yet Gary, the electrician, didn't notice that. And I just feel that massive facial trauma would draw the eye. <laughs> you know, like I feel like you would that would be the first thing you'd notice. I but think he's making it seem like he saw nothing. It was he he had like a little bit of blood in that but also like how close did you get? The door was locked. Great point. So it's just I have a lot of questions about Gary. I have a I have a lot of questions about a lot of it but yeah the other thing i wanted to say was the suicide note in question which again Mm. i don't believe was that um there was no date on it was there there was not right so it's very possible that it could have been pulled from any of the notebooks there was 20 notebooks found there i mean that could have been pulled from any time any place and then had the addendum written on the bottom right like to me it's like yeah he could have written 10 drafts of whatever that letter was and I know that she then released his journals as a book more recently but that's what she's releasing there's nothing to say that she released every single word he ever wrote in every single book right it's true to me it's like easily picked and choose what she was gonna of course I think that that's gotta be the case it's interesting to me again that their lawyer who was her their child's original godmother turned on them so hard i think that that's very interesting and says a lot i think again courtney getting caught in so many lies is such a huge thing to note especially to the uh private investigator it just feels to me and it's it's so hard to know but it does feel interesting to me also that this callie guy was apparently the last one to see kurt alive but then mm-hmm. randomly went to rehab and was like never seen again you know through that time right who was also the nanny of their child but then their child went to live with other people i don't know it's just it's it's it feels to me like courtney is one of these people who has that like je ne sais quoi like that real charisma whatever sure. that electricity about them as someone like probably like the best thing to compare it to would be like you know a cult leader and i say that without i'm not kidding but like somebody who makes people like buy into what they're selling you know what i mean and it feels like doesn't it feel possible that callie who is this ex of hers 
that now he and his girlfriend care for their daughter, which is a huge, I mean, I know that there's lots of people that would say that that's a, you know, non-traditional situation they'd be fine with. I think that that's, you know, very weird, very advanced, much more kind of uh, open-minded than most, I think, especially during that time. But my point being is, isn't it possible she tried to get someone else to do it? She may or may not have, or could she not have just convinced this friend of hers? He was the last one to see him alive, quote unquote. Isn't it possible that mm-hmm. Kurt got home? They were like, let's go get high in the greenhouse. And then it's over. I mean, it feels so easy. Like it doesn't feel like it even requires a huge amount of of kind of espionage. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like. Yeah, they get high or, you know, Kurt gets high, he gets too high. Callie potentially does the second shot or whoever does it, does the second shot. So then he's sure. Right. And then they make the gun shoot and leave the note and they're out. Like, it just feels like it's like such an easily staged scene. It doesn't feel like there's even a lot of effort that would have had to go into it. I also, as a mother. Thank you. Would never never let someone who is in responsible for my child in any way be known like he struggled with a major cocaine problem and so it's like i'm not interested in that like how can i trust that things are going to be fine so i'm just i have a lot of issues with him specifically and yeah i don't think that she did it specifically, but I, I just, I can't buy that he did it himself. Yeah, I can't, I can't buy that Kurt did it. I think Kurt definitely was getting high. Totally. I just don't know. I just don't believe the, that I, he shot himself. I don't, I don't either. Don't. And the point that I was trying to make earlier that I don't think I was very articulate with, but was that I don't believe that he was so despondent about his life at that point. I don't believe that. And I know that it, that that I am not suggesting, I, I know that people can present one way and be going through something very different, different and very difficult internally. I'm not trying to be glib. But my point just is, is that it just doesn't feel like that was the time. It just doesn't, there was nothing else that was pointing towards that other than these alleged suicide attempts that were only labeled that by Courtney. Yeah, we're putting a lot of faith in her. Which, again, we tried. We tried to point out the things that, you know, she was blamed for that were unjust. And let me tell you, the list is short. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, of course, again, speculation on all of it. Speculation. Allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, Listen, Christy Oxborough, you did a great job. I know that this was a tough one for you. Very emotional. And I thought it was exceptionally well done. You are too kind. And the only thing I have to say... (laughs) Which I know you're going to appreciate because why, Christy? My top five favorite Foo Fighter songs are Times Like These, Best of You, Everlong, Learn to Fly, and my number one favorite is Walking After You. I just want everyone to know that she didn't pull that out of her head. She looked down at her notes. She was waiting to be asked. Oh, I wasn't waiting to be asked. My note outright just says, I'm going to mention this. But... <laughs> Excuse me. I'm so sorry. So, of yes. course. Uh, I had, oh, I had to write it down. In this moment, I'm in a state and I don't know what 
is what. So <laughs> Listen, all over the place. I love it. And you've listed yeah. most of my favorites as well. So, well, bless. I will also add I to mean, the mix February stars. Thank you very much. Christy Oxborough, thank you so much for your work. We're, we're all uh, lucky to have you. We're all lucky to have you. And we appreciate all you do. You are uh, too kind. I'm just trying to get through this. You're doing great. In one piece. You're doing great. (laughs) Listen, thank you so much for listening to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. If you like us and you haven't already, give us a follow on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube, all at True Crime and Cocktails. You can find us on Twitter at Not Detectives. If you'd like a little bit more, we do a lot of fun bonus stuff over on Patreon, patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails. And it should also be noted the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com. We've got pink things. We've got all kinds of things. It's a whole lot of fun. Do you want to tell them about next month's? Next month's? Wow. Next week's episode? Jeez. I don't think they'd let us take a month off. (laughs) No. (laughs) Nor would I. Yeah. On the next True Crime and Cocktails, the July Patrons Poll winner, Ryan Singleton. That's right, dear listeners. One of the things we do on Patreon, if you are a subscriber over there, is uh, you can vote in a poll to pick one of the episode topics that we talk about that month. Ryan Singleton, it's going to be quite an interesting case. If you don't know anything about that, don't worry, because as always, Christy always brings the goods. She's going to fill you in with everything you need to know. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Dave girl. <laughs> Good night, Dave girl. <laughs> Hello, listeners of True Crime and Cocktails. Are you ready for a creepy promo? My name is Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan of true crime. Every week on our new podcast, Muriel's Murders, I handpick a real-life crime story that I think will blow Nick's mind. Muriel is really enthusiastic about researching and telling me these stories, and boy, they are a lot. Some of them are famous. Some of them are weirdly under the radar, but all of them contain crime, violence, and murder from across history and around the globe. How does that make you feel, Nikki? Nervous. Are you ready to hear a story? No. Too bad. Here comes Muriel's Murders. So join us every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the original Muriel's Murders animations on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok at Muriel's Murders. Campfire. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.